Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And we're now in the 101st episode. Uh, are you excited for the next 100? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're going to finally get to those movies we say we're going to get to. I'm excited. I'm excited for that part of it, but yeah, I'm stoked to take on the next 100. What about you? Agreed. Kind of like a New Year's resolution. We've had some discussions about like what we've done that we've loved and what we want to do going forward. And one of our resolutions, it seems to be, is to finally tackle some of the classics again. Definitely. Get get yep. some of those mainstream, good old American classics. I think that's the other thing. We want the all American classics. I, I think we've been neglecting those. Yeah, I hard agree. Like we did our draft, which was so much fun. And I think that also inspired us to cover some of the films in our draft that we either have never seen, haven't seen in decades, or have seen and just really feel like we need to cover on the pod. 100, so, dude. Yeah. So it's going to be fun just to get to like the dodgeballs of the world and the happy Gilmores of the world and all of those uh, also dramatic ones, the Rudy's and today's film. So what's on the docket for today? All right. So today we're bringing, bringing back the baseball today. I know it's not baseball season, but me and Paul are missing it already. So we decided to bring back the classic. Uh, we're going to cover Rookie of the Year. And Major League, two classic baseball movies, in my opinion, both comedies, comedies of different eras, though, right? So they're a little, they're, you know, they're different films, but kind of like we're talking about, I think I put these up there as just like classic baseball movies now. Um, Even though we grew up with them, I think now these, they rightly earned their position as, you know, just classic baseball films as well. I hard agree. And what's interesting is Ricky of the Year was the film I watched second in preparation for this. I'd seen it at least 25 times as a kid. I'd say half those times were together at your house or my house there are scenes that i could remember bit for bit or like word for word the visuals the gags all the nine yards it was taking me back on a like deep nostalgic dive but i had never watched it as an adult really and i had never watched it in juxtaposition with major league which i'd also seen a few times as a kid it was one of those movies where like in my head i had seen so many clips even as an adult, and I know about it through the zeitgeist, right? Everyone knows about Wild Thing and Charlie Sheen and some of the shenanigans in the film. But I hadn't actually known 100% with absolute certitude that I had seen it ever okay. until I watched it again. And I remembered, oh, we'd seen this multiple times as a kid. At our friend's house, I, I think we were texting. You thought it, we saw it at Robert Locke's house a bunch, right? Yeah, I feel like Robert Locke was the one who just kind of had like on VHS or something like that. And it's one of the movies you watch over sleepover kind of thing. And I was like, you I had the same thing where it's like, I've seen it in clips, don't really remember it. But when there's that part where they swap out the uh, the live chicken with the KFC, I never really remember the joke, but I just remember the bucket of KFC chicken for some reason. <laughs> and that just like, like you said, click. I'm like, I have seen this like in its entirety. But yeah, for me, it was like one of those ones watching an adult that was different. But I watched it reverse. I watched Rookie of the Year first, and then I watched uh, Major League. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really cool. So what I was going to get to is I noticed a lot of inspiration in Rookie of the Year derived from Major League. And I read that Daniel Stern was the director of Rookie of the Year, and he has a strong comedic sensibility. He obviously has a love for movies. And there's some moments we'll get to in which I thought they were playing with Major League and riffing off Major League and so forth. Okay. But as you noted, they're both baseball comedies. But I would also say they're baseball comedies on the polar end of the spectrum, right? Major League is very much a spoof parody satire film in the vein of Hot Shots, 
uh, Caddyshack, even like scary movie or airplane. One of like those Leslie Nielsen type films. It just has that vibe, even if it's not a direct spoof of baseball movies. It almost feels like it's making fun of sports movies. Yeah, like an adult uh, Bad News Bears. There's one thing <laughs> I was kind of thinking about, like with that one, like even more adult by today's standards. No, it's a great way to put it too. It, it's got a slap shot vibe too, a little bit, right? It's yeah, a rated for sure. R film. It's a little more seedy, even <laughs> from the very, very get go. Starting off with the what feels like a kitchen sink realistic depiction of Cleveland. The gorgeous montage shots of the city, but it's all like industrial and gritty and cold. And it gives you this understanding of the ethos of this world. Like this is a blue collar, rough and tumble team. We'll get more into those specifics in a bit, but very quickly it sets off a sort of gritty tone. Whereas Rookie of the Year is a PG movie made for kids, starring kids, directed by someone who is like one of the, I think, greatest ambassadors for kids cinema in the 90s whether he's an actor behind the camera in this, and that's Stern, right? In the Home Alone movies. Yeah, he's amazing in Rookie of the Year (laughs) when I came back to this. So I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Like we have the PG kids sports comedy and we have the rated R adult sports comedy. I think both hit very like teenage buttons though. Like the comic ground is like teenagers love these across the board. Before we get too deep into either though, let's uh, start with the box office. And we are going to go to Major League first. This film made a decent amount. It made just under $50 million in its domestic run. Its opening weekend was just under $9 million, And it came out on a pretty hot weekend. There are some true winners on this box office domestic 1989 April 7th through 9th weekend. Uh, we have not only Major League, which opens at number one, but we have The Dream Team, a film that I absolutely never even heard of before doing this. I don't know how I never heard of this. It's starring Christopher Lloyd, Michael King, Peter Boy, and Stephen First. The basic synopsis is four mental patients on a field trip in New York City must save their caring chaperone, who ends up being taken to a hospital in a coma after accidentally witnessing a murder before the killers can find him and finish the job. <laughs> you said That's you saw this on Blockbuster. I was just saying, that sounds very 80s. <laughs> like there, there's almost going weekend with Bernie there for a little bit, then it kind of shifted. True. It's got like a darker twist on Weekend and Bernie. It's got two of the classic 80s actors, right? Christopher Lloyd, Back to the Future, Angels in the Outfield. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite Christopher Lloyd role, period? Oh, yeah. Doc Brown. Yeah. I'm a huge Back to the Future fan like of that trilogy, like all three of those movies. And he's probably my favorite character in those movies besides Biff. <laughs> I really like. But yeah, that's that's my role for him. And uh, Michael Keane. What's your favorite Michael Keane role? Oh, man. Actually, I think Birdman now. Birdman. And actually, I'm going to go low-key, though. Super nerdy here. But the episode of uh, 30 Rock, where he has a cameo as the handyman who has to fix a gas leak, is one of my favorite just Michael Keaton appearances. It was kind of in his, like, this is before Birdman, after obviously after Batman. I think people just forgot how funny he was. And I remember that episode, if you could just check it out on Hulu or Peacock or one of those, is worth watching if you you know want to see Michael Keaton on TV show. He's also hilarious in Beetlejuice. Oh, absolutely. As as Beetlejuice, right? For sure. Like, that's, that's another one. Classic one. He's also yeah. very good. Like, Birdman, though, just like was just like, like I said, just a like a mic drop for him, though. Like, I mean, I've only seen that movie like twice, and it's both times I've always just forget. I've always felt like I gotta rewatch it again. It's one of those ones I 
forget how good it is. Absolutely. It felt like the culmination of his career on multiple levels. It was a bit meta as well, right? It felt yeah. reflexive, right. which I love. Like I always think of Mickey Rourke's return to cinema with The Wrestler as like the iconic for me. I mean, it's definitely not the reflexive role of all time, but just for me, it just stands out, especially mm-hmm. with that Oscar run. And Birdman came out quite a bit after, but not too long after, within 10 years after, I believe, The Wrestler. And it felt like another one of those of like, Michael Keaton gets a role that's commenting on his space in film history. Another one, Top Gun 2 with Tom Cruise. A lot of people talked about that. Mm -hmm. It was like talking about Tom Cruise's position as like the last standing blockbuster superstar lead actor who does their own stunts who's pushing the limits, but who's also a bit over the hill and is the veteran who's being told he's too old, right? So you you got that with Birdman and Michael Keaton. You know, it's a really interesting commentary on superhero mythology. There's a funny thing that Scorsese recently had a TikTok with his daughter and it's like you you nod your head right and you're, you're choosing the movie you like and you nod your head left and you're choosing the movie you like. And I think it was like Birdman versus... The good, the bad, and the ugly, and a few other classics. And he kept picking Birdman. And uh-huh. the, the app was glitching and it wasn't like going to the next competition because every time you pick one by, you know, moving your head, it uh-huh. goes to the next two. And it wouldn't even accept the fact that he was picking Birdman. So everyone's joking that the app was biased or knew Scorsese too well and didn't believe that he would actually pick Birdman. And a lot of people were bummed out. And I was like, one, he could have been catering to his daughter's demographic, a younger demographic who would be more familiar with Birdman. I don't know if Scorsese would be that, I don't know, thoughtful about the whole process. He's probably just doing it for fun and going on a whim with his you know, daughter. But the second thing is that I think that people underestimate how good Birdman is. Just like we have recency bias, I think we have anti-recency bias. And I've been thinking about this a few times in the past week, actually. It just came to my mind when we do these big lists, right? There's this feeling that it has to have aged. It has to, right? Uh-huh. Like, there was like a, the best horror movies and it had to be something like The Shining or it had to be something like The Exorcist, the original, uh, the Friedkin films. And those are great classics. But it's odd that it has to be that because a lot of cinema is improving. Like there's A lot of recent films are in some areas and genres and conversations, the peak of cinema. And I just think that's a, a thing that is very hard to check oneself against. And I get why we have an instinct. You know, there's some critics like Don Shanahan, who was on our draft, who's really against deeming something a masterpiece within a year. But I think even within like five to 10 years, he's uh, he's very much about like it has to brew within the culture and it has to sit within the zeitgeist for a long enough time for it to garner that prestige, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I dig. I respect that. Not that... You can't get the intuition that, wow, that's a masterpiece right away on the snap of a finger. But even so, just like let it sit for 10 years before you call it that. It's a good experiment. It's a good way to check yourself. At the same time, there is some art that just like pops at you. You're like instantaneously smitten and you know that that's something, right? To, to flip it to you, is there anything recently in the past five, 10 years that you've seen and it was like, that's a masterpiece on the snap of a finger? Oh, not, I haven't said a masterpiece in a long time. No, not in the last five or 10 years. In fact, I'll say the last one, last one I said that too is maybe actually would be the Infinity Saga, even though like the, the topic of discussion is like the bane of uh, the film industry and everything. And it's like what they set out to do. And as like, as a fan, like clamoring for all that stuff to finally culminate. 
that was one that I, where I think I said that right away, just as a fan of those, of what that was working towards and what it like achieved, like for sure. Right. Yeah. I think that was actually one where like at the end of it, it was like, they actually pulled it off. Like what they set off to do all those years ago with the, you know, the first three with Iron Man, Hulk, and then eventually getting the Avengers trilogy. Yeah. But like, as far as anything else, not in a while other than television. And again, I'm going to use another comic book one. Cause I was thinking actually, uh, as I'm rewatching it is the boys is one that is just like stands out as again, something that is a IP property. It's very different than the IP property is in, in a good way. It's updated. It's up to date in a way that comic book people hate. I will say the writers hate this for some reason. Look at Google Alan Moore, uh, how controlling he is over his shit. But I'm saying this in a good way, like as, uh, as something that I think is a masterpiece for next generation. And I think like you mentioned Scorsese as I'm watching, it, it's really one of those ones that just speaks out against everything that kind of line of thought is rallying against. It's kind of putting it all in this one bubble because it makes, you know, because it's the dominant genre for the last, you know, like 10 years or whatever. Uh, but that's what as I'm watching, I'm like, that's checking off so many boxes of like of movies from the last 10 years plus that test of time. I'm like, this is already checking the box in many ways more than the source material is as a, as something that carries that torch today. So that, I think the boys is one I was, I was definitely, as I'm rewatching, I'm like, this is very, very good. It's, it's a standout thing and it's unique in its own way. And like, I think this is something like right now, I'm like, I'm like, it's a masterpiece of this within the genre. If we even want to just put it in that, but even if you open up your mind beyond that, just like extending that definition beyond this genre, I'm like, this is just great television. Um, along the lines like Breaking Bad, I always say like Nip Tuck is what I always liked. <laughs> it's a completely different genre, but like for those same reasons of his, it was like kind of like shock appeal. And it's also like it's pop culture appeal, the way it kind of, I think, appeals across cultural beyond just like liking comic books. And yeah, I'd, I'd say The Boys would be my TV example. And I would say like the Infinity War movies, what they actually achieved. I was I was super impressed and I really enjoyed enjoyed the ride for that. No, that's a great answer. And I think that there's no denying, even as someone who wasn't very moved by the Infinity War films, any of the Avenger ones, I just didn't vibe with. I've vibed with some of the smaller Marvel movies. Those are always just like too sprawling for me and fitting in too much. That's just purely subjective. On a more objective level, watching those and understanding the hype and understanding the cultural moment and the culmination of this hysteria is totally the wrong word, but this like fervor for those marvel movies leading up to it during that period of cinema and cinematic history it's the equivalent if not more than star wars in the 70s and there's no denying that that is going to have lasting power in 30 years and 40 years the way that people talk about star wars the first three from george lucas we will be talking about phase one of marvel i truly believe yeah. it'll have staying power it always will and people are now cannibalizing each other within that realm, within that sort of superhero media, pop culture, tabloids and press pundits and, you know, all of the trades that deal with that, right? They're, they're having the fallout right now of dwindling numbers and interests and so forth. And they're blaming this and they're blaming that. And the bottom line is that no empire like really sustains forever, right? And mm. it's not dead. It's going through a lull. It couldn't keep up that level of ecstatic mania forever it's not necessarily going to die but it's going to at least hit a plateau at times right there's no steady ascent for anything forever so 
I just find it a natural progression, actually, within phase two or whatever we're in. It is what it is. It'll probably have another one, but I think that forever, even if it, you know, it could go any place from now. Like Marvel could be slowly dwindling to have a rebirth. It could be somewhat dead in 10 years. I don't know. I don't think so, actually. It'll always have a space. What it'll be, I don't know. And I don't really care to get too much in the weeds of that because I'm not an expert in that. All I know is that phase one will always have some posterity. So I agree with you 100% there. The Boys is definitely a cult classic. It's a niche classic. It's a good subversive take on the Marvel or superhero storytelling ethos and sensibility at the height of it as well, right? It's this like transgressive kind of punk rock renegade, deeply satirical, deeply caustic vision that rules. I think it's really brilliant and fun and sassy and witty. Yeah, I, I like both those. I mean, every year I feel like there's a few candidates and it's just funny to see which ones actually survive time, right? Oh. Like last year, I don't care what people think. I think Babylon, immediately I saw that. I was like, in 40 years, people are still going to be talking about Babylon. Yes. <laughs> I think people, yeah. they were overly thinking it was derivative of Boogie Nights and I don't know, a slew of films for fair reasons, but it was something else entirely as well. Oddly enough, I felt it was kind of akin to... PTA's last one, Licorice Pizza, not because of tone, not because of almost anything within the film that you would see on the surface. It was more of the structural progression of a certain type of filmmaker in America going towards a a weird postmodern three-part structure. I don't want to get too deep into that either because we're getting sidetracked. But, But that was one. I think Tar was another one from last year. But then I could throw out like this film Burning from Korea two or three years ago. You know, every year has a few. I, I think that Chazelle's almost always has films like even La La Land. Immediately I was like, oh, this obviously is an homage to, you know, Singing in the Rain and the great musicals of Hollywood. And even if this feels a little corny in 20 years, it'll always have that, right? Like Singing in the Rain has dated. It has dated. It has aged. But even that has been graceful, right? Uh, I think about like The Sound of Music, those films, right? There's these films that just, you know, are just going to always be somewhere within the larger canon. And I felt like La La Land, if you hate it, you love it. People definitely hate or love La La Land. It's always going to have some space. Anyways, fun question, fun sidetrack. We love movies, so it's cool to get in there. Uh, so It's always good, like you said, to do a refresher of what you've seen in the last few years and kind of like requalify it. Absolutely. There is a lot of good stuff. We always say this, even though you know, I feel like we're inundated with the opposite. There's a lot of good stuff up there. And the, for me, it's hard to keep up with all of it. It's good to do these refreshers. I was, I was just talking to my dad about this. Like, you feel guilty today when you go to watch a movie. Because like you said, there's so many classics. And I say classics as a broad spectrum now. From our father's generations uh, to, to ours now. Uh, it's a guilt trip watching a movie now. <laughs> like, sometimes just for pleasure. Because uh, we have such access, like we said, to this catalog, just like everything. So that's, that's it's a good thing, I think, uh, to be so like just burdened with choice. <laughs> yeah, we are so burdened with choice. And we're so ever not only fragmented, but it keeps accumulating, right? Like we have all of the classics of the past and then every year we get more. Mm-hmm. And so the competition to be considered part of like the capital C canon just surmounts or just compounds right like like interest or something it just builds and it creates this aggregate that constantly has to shed while reforming itself and it's such an insane endeavor and it gives us a lot of anxiety as a culture right what do we watch what do we spend our time with it gives us a lot of 
antipathy, right? Like you have to hate stuff so that you can refine your taste so that you can have the time to watch what you love. Not that you actually have to do that, but that is part of the movement, right? If you're yeah. if you're too easygoing, you'll watch too much, right? So that's part of taste making. There's also this sense of just like on way or oversaturation, right? There's just a, a, a surfeit of goodness, of riches, right? And that decadence, that hedonism almost feels indulgent to the point of nauseating or it's a vertiginous feeling like i'm drowning in too much good stuff <laughs> just like a like a stoner in 7-eleven <laughs> it's just like the, so. yeah we get dizzy to the point of of losing it and you have to anchor yourself and so let's anchor ourselves again in this conversation and jump back to 1989 sure. a pretty abrupt pivot and get back to the films that are opening the same time of major league so we have the dream team which spun that really fun tangent. We have then Deadcom. Deadcom is the second film that's opening this weekend. It's directed by Philip Noyce, starring Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill, and Billy Zane. Its tagline is High Seas, Deep Terror. Its byline, after a tragedy, John Ingram and his wife, Ray, are spending some time isolated at sea when they come across a stranger who has abandoned a seeking ship. So this like stranger, this rogue dude, Billy Zane, comes on their small ship, their yacht, and I believe he wreaks havoc. I've not seen this, but I have seen Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water. And immediately upon reading the synopsis, I thought of that film. So I watched the trailer and it, to me, it's a direct remake of Knife in the Water, one of the great thrillers of all time. So I'm highly interested in this, first of all. So this is going to be already a high favorite on my list of what movie I'm going to choose, right? Because our gimmick, which I should bring up every episode, is that I'm bringing up these box office films because Jordan and I are both going to have to choose one to spend our hard-earned allowance money on at the age of two years old when we are still basically just out of diapers or I don't even know what stage we're in at this point. We're not going to theaters yet, but pretend like we were. Pretend like we're in Baby's Day Out or something. <laughs> time. We took Doc Brown's time machine back and we we're just going to catch a movie. Catch a movie, all right. Anyways, we're choosing one that we're going to go to on that Friday matinee, we'll call it. So this is high on my list. Any thoughts on this one from you? Do you know about this one at all? Or No, I don't. The only thing is it sounds like like you mentioned the Polanski film. So it reminds me of that Treehouse of Horror episode where Marge and Homer are at sea and the stranger comes over or gets lost at sea and they bring him on boat. And uh, of course, he tries to kill him or they, they end up killing him, I think is the reverse of the show. But anyways, my point being, it seems like one of those very... Uh, popular kind of plots that's kind of parodied like throughout uh pop culture and sitcoms yeah i love that i'm gonna say the most rehashed thing ever but it's amazing how much simpsons covers oh, like yeah. yeah it's so hackneyed to say but you can you just get a full cultural lesson through that one television yeah it's show. like 30 years of like lit classes cinema classes and history lessons if you ever just particularly if you watch the first 15 seasons it's like making your homework funny that's one of the things i always thought about as i as i uh, went to school growing up yeah and it's perfect transition from our conversation about the canon being too big because it's this like conglomerate of the canon right all these illusions and references and winks, yeah, very referential right into one thing so it consolidates it a little bit, gives you some ground again. Anyways, Deadcom, second choice. The Dream Team was our first. Our final choice is Cyborg, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Have you seen this? Yeah, I've seen this one. This is one of those not very good ones for Van Damme. Not on my top 10 Van Damme list. I know there's definitely a cult following for this one. 
but it's kind of like Van Damme in the future, basically protecting like of I think the woman, if I remember right, is a cyborg. Uh, she has like the cure for something. But yeah, if I was like, even as I describe it, it's literally like that class, like 80s post-apocalyptic kind of thing. Almost not like Mad Max, a little more industrial, a little more city based, but not the best Van Damme one, though. I will say he's a little more like Van Damme kind of being like in the Terminator role, more gun worthy, not, not so much kicking ass with the hands and feet. But it would be one inch I'd be interested to see in the theater, not picking it. But it's one of those ones like kind of like B ones that I could see it being kind of being fun to check out in the theater. Absolutely. I've not seen it. I know it was directed by Albert Pune. I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name. I have a lot of friends. We've had some guests like Matt Stroll who are diehard aficionados of Albert Pune's auteurist sensibilities and his filmography. He passed away last year and it definitely hit a lot of people in the cinephile film lover scene hard. I know that he was loved in this kind of the same way that Ed Wood was loved, right? That has a perfect reference for people, I guess, who might not know of him, but know of Tim Burton, right? Mm-hmm. And his love of Ed Wood. But, you know, he was one of the kings of low budget B movies and direct to video action films. You know, he has a huge list. He filmed like kickboxer films. He did Blood Match, the 1990 Captain America, Alien oh, nice. from LA. Brain Smasher, A Love Story, Kickboxer 4, Postmortem, Nemesis 3. It goes on and on. He had a nonstop just barrage of fun, straight-to-video VHS action movies. This, is I, I know, is one of them and is, is one that's often referenced in the trades, in the literature, when you read about you know this part of history. And I have not gone on a kick yet. Um, I haven't done the deep dive here. So I am a little bit, you know, just out of the know when it comes to this. I'm a little illiterate of his filmography in like an experiential firsthand basis. I've just read about him a lot and I'm not seeing this one. So kind of stoked about this one too. Oh, I'm having trouble. Um, This one, just to give really quickly the summary, it's a martial artist hunts a killer in a plague infested urban dump of the future. I love that. I love those late 80s dystopian ones. Escape from New York and Escape from LA. Little Total Recall, little Robocop kind yeah, of vibe. Kind of has like all that in it. Yeah. Love it. Actually, I was say, actually in the cast, just the name drop, like Angelina Jolie's in this. I'm looking at it right now. Malcolm uh, McDowell's in it as well. So, I mean, he's got a couple of big names in it too. Crazy. Okay. Oof. All right. This is one of the tougher ones. We only have three that opened as well. Which one are you going to choose? Okay, so I've seen Cyborg already, so I'm not going to choose that one. Uh, it's kind of tough because, like, Dream Team sounds good because of the cast. Mm-hmm. Switch the story. The cast sounds cool. Like you said, it's pretty rolling, like, 80s cast. I kind of want to see Dead Calm and just to see, like, how much it is. Like, the Simpsons episodes also sounds like a fun one, too. So I'm a Simpsons fan. I'm going to pick Dead Calm. Good choice. Knife of the Water is Great. I mean, Nicole Kidman and Sam O'Neill. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of a dream duo at that period. Um, they're so good. I got to pick a different one. Also, the dream team. It sounds so zany, so 80s. Very. So goofy. But I'm going to go, right? I just talked about how I'm not yet in the know when it comes to Albert, you know, Albert Puyen. So I'm going to do Cyborg. I mean, it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. I get to see that in the theaters. Come on. It's like 89. What am I doing if I don't see that, right? Right. You've seen it. I get it. You've seen it. You're good. But that that's my ticket. I'm going to that one. And like, be honest, for me, I, I'm a Universal Soldier fan. That's another kind of cyborgish movie. John claude Van Damme features one. 
that's what I really like, actually. And even the straight-to-video one, Universal Soldier The Return, which has Goldberg from WCW in it, is fucking awesome. <laughs> it sounds like it'd be trashy, but it's fucking awesome. Uh, highly recommend that B-movie, for sure. Uh, Universal Soldier. Oh, uh, definitely. I- I've not seen that one either. I, I want to go on a kick. That's like one of my top to-do lists. Like I did that too. Like before he was canceled, right? I went on like a Woody Allen kick one year and okay. I watched like 60 of his films. So you know what I mean? Like I can totally do those deep dives. Mm-hmm. A little less today than I could five, 10 years ago. And like all I did, was doing was watching like 28 movies a week. But I still kind of want to get into that. I love just like immersing myself in one world. But for now, we got to be happy just immersing ourselves in the world of sports movies because that's our pod and that keeps at least one consistency through the craziness of life so let's get into major league real quick sure. what are your first takeaways from major league well, like initially like i know we talked briefly about it but where where does it fit for you i guess in the pantheon of sports movies in the pantheon of 80s movies in the pantheon of sports comedies yeah i think now after watching it like you said uh what kind of was like my first time really sitting there and seeing it um, I didn't realize how much it captures like the locker room and like the bullpen culture, the dugout culture. I thought it was much more surface comedy. Like you mentioned earlier, hot shots and naked gun. I thought it was much more parodying on that degree, like much more of a one to one. We're making fun of this thing at a super obvious level. And the audience is in on a joke on all of it all the time. That's not what this is. Right. It's basically it's kind of like like we'll talk about it with rookie of the year. It's basically like shit team needs something to have a hook. Right. And it has the villain has to be in the main office. Right. Kind of pushing against that, pushing against the hook and the team unity. Right. They both have that thing going for it, um, which is super sports cliche kind of thing as well. But like I'm saying, I thought it was much more cliche than that. It's kind of not in, in that way. It's actually a lot more about the athletes. And kind of like in the way like of another movie covered like replacements, it's about these athletes getting like a second chance or some of them their first chance, right? And that's one thing I didn't really remember clearly about it. I just remember it's a team that sucks and they do funny stuff. That's about it. There's a lot of shenanigans. And there's definitely a lot of fun shenanigans for sure. A lot of good like 80s pranks in the the lines of like um, Revenge of the Nerds, stuff like that and in that kind of vein. Uh, so it does have that kind of comedy. That's one thing I think it's closer to like Revenge of the Nerds, I think, as I watch it now, than Hot Shots is what I was thinking. I remember I remember my text, I'm like, I'm going to need to watch Hot Shots Part 2 after I see this, which I still need to do. But now I want to watch Revenge of the Nerds too. <laughs> I'm just checking this one out. But again, just like uh, kind of carrying on that vein, the, the I didn't realize how much we actually get in these characters. And like all kind of like basically nine characters of the baseball team, how much screen time they all kind of get, how all of them kind of get their little story circled around. And really how spread out it was. That's one thing I didn't realize. It's a pretty long movie. Same with Rookie of the Year. And it's a lot of like really good feel-good buildup. And then conflict comes kind of at like, you know, the third act or whatever. And the fourth act is our cool like game, which we were kind of used to, right? As we, as we covered um, Angels in the Outfield. And I think this is kind of like where that's getting it from. And like you mentioned Rookie of the Year kind of borrowing that or kind of being influenced by that. And I think I see that as well. Uh, I, see, I see that more now as I, as I watch it the first time. I love that. Yeah, I thought of Animal House too. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not as raunchy or rowdy as Animal House, mm-hmm. but the locker room when they're undressing or derobing the the poster cutout of the evil owner of the team, right? Yeah. Win by win. You know, those are the types of shenanigans. But it also has that Caddyshack ragtag humor mm-hmm. where 
like Wesley Snipes, who's the speedy guy, but the clumsy guy who has no real skills, right? Definitely a trope that lives for a long time in sports movies where he like wakes up in his bed right next to the baseball field <laughs> and then immediately runs onto like the, the diamond and wins a race at practice, right? There's the scene with Wesley Snipes trying to steal base and he stops just dead, like three inches away from the base pad. A lot of physical slapstick humor that's memorable and, and, and classic. And that's where it's a little more kid-like, right? You know, it's such a soft R for today, but like our ratings have changed, right? And we are a bit more conservative in the late 80s. So I think this was like not a hard R, but this was like a R movie, yeah. definitely in the, the late 80s. Um, some adult themes. One knock, I think, is that there's a romantic subplot that I think really detracts from the film a bit. So it's like kind of obligatory. They put those in there with Rene Russo, who's becoming like the OG gangster sports movie <laughs> chick of this era. Right? right. Like, I mean, of we did just covered her in two for the money, but I know she's in Tin Cup. Um, we've referenced her in other films as well. She's becoming very quickly the Kevin Costner of sports movie <laughs> in Love Interest. Um, be fair, you know, we also she, just covered Wesley Snipes, though, in um, The Fan. Fan, right? A funny it's, thing is Wesley Snipes says that's the only baseball film he's ever done <laughs> in interviews. So I don't know if that's a diss at Major League. I don't know if he considers Major League just a comedy and not a sports movie. It's a funny comment I read. He's the standout in Major League. Like, I mean, Charlie Sheen's like, you know, he's the star for the young audience. Tom Berenger is bringing in the older crowd. You have Corbin Bertson, right, who's on TV a lot then. But Wesley Snipes kills it. Obviously, he's in a lot of movies then, too. So he's still at the hype of it. But he's just like the perfect person to play an athlete. Like his name, Willie Mays Hayes. He plays it so well. Um, and he's the one who can't hit, right? He's the one who's fast. And the coach tells him, you, you know, you need to hit the ball low so you can take off. Every time you hit up in the air, I want 10 push-ups, right? He does it during the game, too, when he when he messes up. Right? He's the one who really, if you're being super critical on, the, on their performances of these actors in this one, he really shows up in this one. Like like you said, the comedy side, the athlete side, he was one of the like standouts in, in this one that, that absolutely surprised me because there's so many so many of my memories are about wild thing with this one and his hair and the glasses, the growl, kind of the grimace of his face. Uh, that's one thing I always remember him as a kid, you know, him being kind of the intimidating bad boy kind of thing. Uh, but watching it now, man, this is this is a good Wesley Snipes one, just as good as the score, which I liked. He was good in the score too, so I don't get why he doesn't why he doesn't like why he's kind of like this in this one. Uh, it's a cult classic. Yeah, totally. And when you said the score, you meant the fan, right? Was that yeah, it? Sorry, I always do that. Yeah, the fan. All, all good. Mix up Robert De Niro. This is the score, right? With Edward Norton yeah. with the fan. So I think I told a lot of people uh, to watch the score when I meant to go watch <laughs> the fan. So when they go to Google, they're like, what the fuck was that dude talking about? But <laughs> I love that. Episode, you'll know. They're both sports movie titles in a way, right? The score. <laughs> Even Which if it's like awesome, a, just movie about like what, a heist, right? Yeah, a hit movie or a heist movie, right? But you know, they both are teams working towards a goal to win money, right? But yeah, as Willie Hayes, he is classic, right? And I love that it's a reference to to hit like Mays is a reference to Willie Mays, the great Major League Baseball center fielder. And when he says he runs like Hayes, it's actually a reference to Bullet Bob Hayes, who won the gold medal in the 100 meter dash in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. Which is funny because we did Tokyo Olympiad 
in our like five degrees of separation from Kevin oh. Bacon world, right? <laughs> it's just a funny, like weird reference. So I got to ask you this right now because yeah. it's on my mind because we're just talking about Wesley Snipes and like, like you said, like I like the, everything they put into his name with the speed, the hitting. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the base stealing scenes in this one and some of the base stealing scenes in Rookie of the Year? I was yeah. watching this. I don't remember a lot of baseball movies were like stealing the bases. Like was as good as actually Major League has a really good like footage of him. His whole thing was like, well, he bought a hundred gloves to put on the wall for each base he saw, right? Well, I don't know why. I thought that'd be kind of just be like a nothing thing. Like we'd see it here and there, but like some of the way, the way they integrated it, both with the shots and like it being, you know, a big way to win the game. I was pretty impressed by that. I was watching, I'm like, this is like, this would be the most entertaining season ever just with how many, how many times this dude has stolen bases. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Because what I'm getting at is Rookie of the Year is also one of those ones where Henry Roland Gardner chirping the pitcher is so iconic that when i watched this with my wife she was like that's where this is from meaning pitcher's got a big butt when he goes pitcher's got a big butt right she's like me and my sister used to say that all the time i never even seen this movie right so, so i was like it, it definitely has its like working of the year has its place in the culture i think uh, at least in our generation what would you what do you what do you think about that yeah, I know. I love how prominently both films feature kind of broken plays, right? I love that trope in sports movie where it exaggerates or accentuates the small things in a sport. And it's almost an ongoing running joke, pun intended running joke, that like they're not that good. So stealing bases is their method to score. Personally, too, it just feels so relevant to watch these after like a huge moment of fandom or like bandwagon fandom for me in, you know, Arizona with the Diamondbacks. I went to like most of the playoff games. That team's identity was stolen bases. Their motto was embrace the chaos. And it was a reference to the fact that they create chaos in the bases because they don't they're not sluggers. They're not big home run hitters. They don't even have the best CRBIs. But once they get on base, they make it hell for teams. And that's basically how they kind of work their way to the World Series, actually. And the Rookie of the Year stole, you know, I think the most bases of all time. He set a bunch of records in the in the playoffs, like the most stolen bases in a game seven, things like that, right? So such an underrated part of baseball, Brilliant, um, right? you know? And a part that I love too, it's the scrappiness. It also kind of, back to the films, reinforces, especially the major league team. You know, they're kind of a money ball team, you know, a team yeah. of, nobody's who has to find some angle to win. It's all veterans. It's all over the hill players. I loved your reference to the replacements. I think that's perfect. I didn't think of that, actually. There's got to be more, too. I'm kind of racking my brain for more films that are about a team that's entirely composed of players who are past their prime and find like their one last hurrah, which is funny because it's kind of like a score movie because like the main motif or like a sort of a cliche of heist movies is that it's some like lifetime criminal who gets pulled back in for one last <laughs> job, right? This is kind of the same thing. It's like a bunch of ball players who get called back for kind of nefarious or mercenary purposes, right? To do one last job really quickly. What came to mind to me first watching this was... Ted Lasso, because it's a film about an owner who's also a female owner, which is quite rare. It's not super rare, especially in cinema. We get quite a lot in our favorite films, like Any Given Sunday as well with Cameron Diaz. But like Ted Lasso or setting the example for Ted Lasso, Major League is about an owner who kind of wants to sabotage the team. Now they have very different reasons, right? Major League, yeah, I actually vibed with her reasons. It's like Cleveland sucks. Our (laughs) fan base sucks. We have no direction in this town. 
Let's get to Miami. Let's get a let's get a new space. <laughs> let's have a reboot, have a restart, right? And so she has to, because of all this corporate benchmarks and quotas, she has to hit under a certain, you know, attendance mark to be able to sell the team, right? So she's trying to tank the team. Like people try to tank their teams for draft stocks, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Ted Lasso, you gotta think that when you know Jason Sudeikis and the creators were creating the show, you gotta think they were pulling from it a bit. I mean, I can't say for sure. I didn't read any interviews, but you know, Ted Lasso first and foremost starts with the first episode is about an owner who hires an American coach because she wants her soccer team or football team to lose, right? He thinks he's a bumbling idiot, not an idiot, but like he's ill suited for the job. And so she has an antagonistic interest in the team. And that leads to an ongoing humor and a, I wouldn't call it a tragic irony. I'd call it a situational irony where what, a system that's always intended to incentivize one thing flips, right? It's funny, the whole red ticket conceit or motif in Major League, right? Where you get kicked off and you get the red ticket in the locker. So iconic. It's funny because you realize that the people getting the red ticket are actually the people who would normally be making the team. The people getting kicked off the team, right, are, are too good. That, that's kind of the obvious but ongoing gag of the film is that if you're too talented, you get the boot. So yeah, I just thought that was pretty, pretty interesting for me. I, I, I really thought that the owner was an inspiration for, I forget the name of the owner in Ted Lasso. What's her name? Do you remember her name? Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca. Yes. But shot quite differently. And here, I also love the way they shot her in these darkly lit rooms. And she's such a femme fatale. She reminded me of like the femme fatales from 30s and 40s and Mm -hmm. 50s noirs, like Double Indemnity and so forth. And very well played as well. It definitely gives off the nefarious vibes that like Cameron Diaz does in Any Given Sunday. But again, within the context of the comedy, where like like you said, mentioning Ted Lasso, where I forget, I don't know the name of her assistant. I think it's charlie is her assistant if i remember right uh right he's like the one who wants to root for the team and he can't like he can't show how happy he is around here but i agree with you because i'm watching as i was watching this i was like it is kind of the ted last story but reverse where rebecca becomes very likable where you completely forget by the end of that season that she even wanted to tank the team right whereas i think as we point out that's not the case with that cliche sports trope right because we mentioned it's, it's a common one where the female owner who comes in after the dad died always, right? Got got the team that way, inherited it, and they're going to mess it up. And that, that's true in any given Sunday too, right? Even though there's more complexity to that one than this one, it's still that same base one. And I think, like I said, Ted Lasso definitely ran with that thread more with that Rebecca character to kind of make her very redeemable and one of the most likable characters in that whole show. Anyways, yeah. And what's interesting too is this isn't like isolated to the realm of fiction, even as crazy far fetched as it seems, right? It seems like a sitcom getup, right? It seems outlandish or exaggerated. But, you know, the Rachel Phelps character, who's the owner, and her plan to move the Indians was inspired by the real life Minnesota Twins owner, Calvin Griffith. In the 1970s, when he was in this uh, process of reconstructing the Metrodome Stadium, he was trying to negotiate for an escape clause so that they can leave Minnesota. And then just like this film, right when he's trying to leave, they start winning and they ruin it. <laughs> What's also funny is that Miami does end up getting a team in real life. And four years after they get their team, or five years after, I think, they win the World Series in 1997 yeah. and they beat, of all teams, the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> Another thing that's fascinating about Major League is that before Major League, 
the tradition of closers walking out to a theme song wasn't really a thing. And now you hardly have a closing pitcher without a theme song. And they're all iconic. This year, Paul Seawald for the Diamondbacks came out with Jump Around, Jump Around, <laughs> you know, Jump Around. And just like the whole place goes nuts every single time. But like part of being a closer is having your song. And that song has to be like a hype song. And there's no greater song than Wild Thing. One of the great pitchers today, uh, he's on the Atlanta Braves, Spencer Strider. He wears 99 in homage to Wild Thing. So it, I just love how baseball of all, I think, sports, I mean, you could correct me. I mean, I'm sure like there's some references to the Mighty Ducks in the NHL and so forth, but I truly feel like a lot of baseball films truly linger yeah. in the symbolism and semiotics of this sport. Like they have a field of dreams game every year. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like the romanticism of baseball, maybe it's because they have 162 games and they're all bored as hell and sitting there chewing gum and spitting sunflower <laughs> seeds and thinking about these movies. Damn, if these movies don't linger in their consciousness. Getting back to the film itself though, right? We talked a bit about how it's it's both a comedy and like kind of a just a seminal sports movie, right? What I took from this too is it's just, like you said, The Replacements, a template. I know there's tons of sports movies that came before this, right? It's the end of the 80s. There's plenty of sports comedies that even came before this, but I feel like this truly starts to set the foundation for what would be like 90 sports movies with that team, the character that loves voodoo, um, <laughs> the old guy who wants to say a prayer, the bumbling coach, the bad boy pitcher, right? Uh-huh. All the archetypes forming this ragtag bunch, they all truly are echoed again and again and again in movies like The Mighty Ducks and Angels in the Outfield. And watching this, it felt, you know, not too far removed, right? I even with my wife got in a slight argument, like, is this a 90s film? I was like, no, it's an 80s film. Kind of off the cuff of my, like, I I took a leap of faith saying that. I wasn't 100% sure. We had to look it up. And I was like, okay, I won. Barely, maybe not. (laughs) Just just in in the range. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because it felt like a 90s movie, right? Because it was like a VHS movie of our generation, right? It was at the blockbuster you know, not the new on the wall aisle, yeah. but it was in the aisle aisle. It also had all the sequels in the mm-hmm. 90s to it too, is the other thing, right? Oh, that's a great point, right? But on the sports side, you kind of mentioned it already, right? It's actually quite a good sports movie, right? It's a good underdog movie. It it does all the things you need to do. It has the three fans who are beating the drum and no one in the stands. And by the end, the stands are full. It's got the great announcer because when you bring up the fans, I love the announcer and his little side buddy where he's like then the fans are going wild and the second announcer is like doing the clapping and trying to get you know filling filling the the void of sound uh it was bob yorker is just really one of the better announcers I, I completely forgot how like you said setting the tone for other announcers like like john candy having to do the opposite of just being you know disappointed with the team and verbally side shotting it right it's his take whereas it's harry doyle the character in it right He's pouring his whiskey, right? He's he's making side bets with with the other crew and making the Spanish. You know, it's so of the time, right? It's like it's, it's, you know, it's like when you go to see your parents at work for the first time, you kind of see what they're actually like, right? They're, they got their own own gig going on. It's kind of like that. Like one of the things I like about it, it's very revealing, uh, not just of the time, but like you said, of of like of being a part of a team that sucks, right? It's part of your job to show up every day and pump their tires, right? And to do that on the outside, but inside you fucking hate it, right? I love the, the outward expression. This is one of the better ones because we're talking about it. I'll be honest, for me, it was I, I was stoked. I, I totally forgot John Candy did the the announcing in Rookie of the Year. So I, like I said, I watched Rookie of the Year first. I was like, oh, John Candy was awesome. But then Bobby Uecker's Harry Doyle is just too good. 
is just too, I think I would say two eighties. It's the thing is it, it, it works better because of that, like just that distinction of it being eighties versus a nineties movie. It wouldn't fly anymore in the nineties. I think uh, I'm going to talk about it a little more towards the kids too, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, he was a classic. He was chosen in our draft, I believe by Mikey. I forget yeah. exactly who picked him. When I would look up and I brought this up in the draft, top fictional announcers in sports movies on, you know, long piece rankings, always number one. I think that I would put the overrated card on actually, even after watching this. Uh, I, I think the dude from Slapshot for me. That's a good call, right? That's the one um, on top of my head. He, that's one that always stands out to me. <laughs> another funny thing is that he was an actual actor. And when he was hired for the film, right? Uh-huh. When uh, the director, David S. Ward, asked Bob Uecker to play Harry Doyle, he chose him because he liked his Miller Light ads and his work on the sitcom Mr. Belvedere. Oh, okay. And it wasn't until they met that he learned that he had been the radio broadcaster for 20 years for the Brewer. So either David Ward is just sleeping under a rock, which is weird because he was self-proclaimed as a lifelong Cleveland Indians fan. He's, he's not a, like a film art dude who doesn't like sports. Like, <laughs> Actually, one of the funniest things I read about this was that he kind of created the movie because he was just so sick of watching the Indians lose that he wanted to at least create a fictional <laughs> world where they would win something. <laughs> That's like, pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty epic, right? Like what a what a what a solution, right? <laughs> They're not going to win in real life. I'm going to just create a fictional right, world where they can win. Yeah. But what I loved about his whiskey too, right, was like he dabbed some of the Jack Daniels behind his ear in that scene, right? Uh, I don't know if you saw that or caught uh, that. I don't think I caught uh, that. So he dabs it behind his ear, but that's improvised by him. And people always wonder, like, why is he doing that? And it's just he loved it so much. He felt like like the character loved it so much that he would wear it like perfume. Uh, just the small details in this. They're so good. I talked a little bit of crap so just bluntly about the the romance. What did you think of it? Did you like it? The Moby Dick and library motif, right? Where he's like reading a comic book Moby Dick. That was funny. Uh, to answer your question, no, I don't like that romance or the random part where uh, Wild Thing hooks up with... Um... Roger Dorn's wife out of nowhere. Yeah. Those are very the romance between Rene Russo and um Tom Berenger's character, there's nothing to it, right? It's 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 reeks of just cliches, has to be in there. We have to cast I mean, a movie full of dudes. We have to get a woman in there. And unfortunately, like at this time, it's gotta be a love story. Like we've covered all of them, right? And but this one's a really thin one, right? There's no reason at all for her to leave her. Rich fiance, who seems like a nice dude. Hey, to be honest, I know he's supposed to be bad. But like, he's part of like, dude, just minding his own business. And his ex ball players stalking his fucking wife or his fiance all around town and shit, right? But yeah, the, I mean, it's it's one of the it's one of the worst ones I will say that I think we've covered. We've done hundred episodes actually, and this is a pretty bad one. There's not a whole lot of redemption of any of any female character in this. In fact, the worst one, the only one that makes sense is the fact that when they're undressing the owner, right, of their thing is that the one thing we know about her is like the media says she's an ex-showgirl. What does she know about being a uh, an owner, right? It's like one of the things that she's kind of battling against, right? So that one makes sense in terms of what they're going for and like them trying to push it, push it to the to the boss or whatever. But my thing as I was watching this is like, what are we supposed to do with this romance though? Because this movie's so fun and it has like so much like great development. And then, like it's, like I mentioned, it's just like a narrative dump in the third act where you have to get um, what's his name's wife being in Charlie Sheen's character. And then they don't really have to overcome that until Charlie Sheen actually has to go pitch. So it was just one of those ones that just didn't 
didn't really have to be in here, to be honest. There's plenty of tension. They already had the tension between um, Roger Dorn, Corbin Burton's character, and Wild Thing from the locker room when he makes a chirp about him wearing an, the earring and does he have the dress to go with it, right? Really, actually, a very funny line for that time, I thought, perfectly capturing these two sides of, like, the locker room, right? He's, like, this kind of, like, punk, grungy dude. He's the old school baseball. I, I like that going. I, I felt that was enough for them to, like, overcome, and then they'd be buddy-buddy, and you get the team mode again. But yeah, it's just very like lowball casting in this one. Yeah. I mean, I think what really, really got under my skin was the fact that they win the baseball game and then they carry Rene Russo like off the field. Like what? <laughs> like in what world does that make any sense? Like right. I get that there's like this romantic subplot and for him, it's a big deal. And it's like the most cringy anti-romance scene ever where she shows her finger without the ring suddenly in the stands. <laughs> After he stalked her the whole movie as a total creep. So funny. Also, he like, he doesn't even brag. He like says he makes the league minimum <laughs> when he's with her rich friends. He didn't have that going for him, which was hilarious. Like I looked it up. The league minimum in 1989 was $68,000. So the dude was making 68 grand. Not terrible though. Um, the average income in 1990 was 30 grand. So, you know, he's making double. Play some baseball. I would say that's like that's like an almost up there's like an entry level NHL contract now, right? The minimum yeah. for some of those, like not not the worst, not the best. What was killer about that was how confident he told that group of like aristocrats or like faux oh. aristocrats, right? The parvenu <laughs> hanging out, drinking there, whatever. I gotta say that was the thing. Like I was like, this is a nice group of people just chilling yeah. here drinking dinner. I I felt like we're supposed to hate these rich people, but they actually like him. Like the ones all like thought he was cute or something, giving them the eyes and all that. They they're very nice to him. To make the you know the new boyfriend and his circle the enemy was so it just did not land. And I love that the only thing he has to do is do a fucking homework assignment and he gets her back. I think that was, that was the other thing. I was like, you just had to read a book or that was it. Fix it. Moby Dick of all things, like. Maybe she had a certain word count that he needed to read, I guess. You picked Moby Dick for that reason. But I mean, but that won her over. She didn't really quiz him, even though he only read the comic. And then I gotta say, because we even got the other cliche we always talk about the sportswoman who either was raised with a father who played sports or she played some sport, right? That just dropped in in that in that little dinner conversation, right? That she was an ex-swimmer, and apparently the new one didn't know that. Yep. And then he was gonna raise their child to be an Olympic star in the same sport. Um, I feel like she should have had the fiance look up old highlights of her and maybe he would have is that what she wanted because apparently he didn't know she was next swimmer maybe he already read moby dick i don't know she's she's playing games here <laughs> another funny thing that i was reading too is just some of like the tricks and maneuvers they did to shoot the baseball right mm -hmm. um first of all i did not know this but charlie sheen had a scholarship for baseball to Kansas University. So he wow. can actually pitch. He's actually decent. And he can pitch up to 85 miles an hour. It's not that bad. But oh, to give yeah. the impression that he was actually pitching 100 miles per hour, they had to move the mound up 10 feet. So when you're watching it, if you'll notice, they always shoot him from behind the plate. So you can't uh, notice the depth of the mound to the catcher, which is really fascinating. If you also watch closely, Wesley Snipes' running scenes are always shot in slow motion to give the impression that he's running faster than he actually is. Mm. I'm curious about this. I couldn't find it. It's, that's why I started looking for this is Wesley Snipes has an amazing catch, right? Like right on the, uh, you know, home run barrier on the outfield, right? And it looks exactly like him. And I was curious if he actually did his stunts. They almost never do that in any of these films anymore, right? Yeah. I couldn't find it. But what I also noticed, which was so weird, 
was that on the wall inside the stadium, it said the Minnesota Twins. And I looked it up and they shot this all in the Minnesota Twins stadium, often between innings, right? Or in these little moments very quickly because they have to get the fans there, right? Yeah. I just was shocked that they didn't have foresight or didn't think to remove the Minnesota Twins or that back in the 80s, they couldn't digitally remove that. <laughs> it's such a, I mean, I don't, I hate the phrase cinema sin, but it's such a continuity error, right? They're supposed to be in Cleveland. They're playing the Yankees, right? That's the only team they seem to play in this movie is the Yankees, <laughs> right? Um, another great, great small character, right, is Haywood, the mustache-shoyed big hitter for the Yankees, the one yeah. guy that Rayvon can't pitch against. This is maybe the funniest fact of all I read is he was played by a former pitcher, actually, that big monstrous behemoth of a hitter was never a DH slugger. He was a lifetime pitcher in the American League, which means he only went to bat a few times and he pitched for 11 years in Major League Baseball. During eight of those years, he never made a single plate appearance. He never once hit a single home run in 11 years. And he has like under a dozen hits in that time period as well. <laughs> the dude's name is Peter Vukovic. <laughs> um, but I thought, I thought that was so funny to play like the polar opposite of your actual career in right. a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Super fun. The last character we haven't talked about, maybe it's because it's the most, I would say, polarizing one or in 2023 subtext and context, I think the most divisive one. And that's Pedro Serrano, the Cuban voodoo loving uh, Jubu doll, rum pouring. Favorite characters in this one, man. Oh, yeah. oh my God, dude. He, like, again, he is the president now. He's the president for 24. If you watch close without the beard, right? And this one, this dude was fucking built. Right? But no, I, I think he, like we're talking about the predecessor of, I guess, particularly like the dichotomy of Christianity versus this voodoo dude. I love the way that's explored in this. And the humor of like what I'm getting at is like he has a great voodoo set up over his little idol or his whatever I'll call it an idol, right? That he worships, has a cigar, right, and a shot of rum, right? And he explains his reasons for it, right? He's all about keeping the bats warm. The bats are supposed to be warm. Again, like this is a pretty like again, like I'm thinking also as a wrestling fan, like Papa Shanglo is also popular around this time, who's had the whole voodoo thing and all that. The way he embodies it is one thing I really like about it. And I like the way it's played off. With, like I said, the Christian dude, and when he knocks the idol over and gets beamed by the bat as, like, you know, karma for it, right? And then we see him later kind of, I forgot, does he keep the, he keeps his idol next to him when he's pitching, if I remember, right? We see him kind of being converted or having respect for it, right? But I also like that Pedro, he actually, like, renounces the god before he hits the curveball. Like, the whole thing, he's been worshiping, right? I was like, I was watching it, I was like, this is pretty interesting take on these devices of religion. The whole reason he came to the U.S., they said, was freedom of religion right i was like these are some great reasons behind this character who's from the region of the world they come to play baseball from right i I was one of those ones i was like they got a pretty cool origin story for him and the way he plays out is like the dark and mysterious intimidating dude i i I don't know it's one of those ones i really i liked it i i completely forgot this dude is even in it for one thing but it's just like it's something that's necessary i feel like like we're talking about like what makes these sports movies is the other you have to have one of these characters who represents the other. And this one's a comedy, right? So it's usually, I guess, they, you're, you can argue they're there for com- comedic relief, I guess. But this is one of those weird representations of the other where they come to identify with the person who others them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Through teamwork. And I was like, this is this very symbiotic relationship that's kind of subtle in this. But like, I thought it was super cool that the Christian dude started liking the idol. And that the dude who represented the idol suddenly started believing in himself. I was like, those are, those are two interesting takes that you, I would not expect from a movie like Major League. 
I love that. Yeah, right. You were talking about Chucky Ross, the actor playing Eddie Harris, right? He's a Christian who ends up appreciating voodoo culture, right? And the Jubu dolls and understanding the power of superstition, that type of faith-based, I'll call it momentum, that phenomenology, right? The phenomenology of superstitious belief as a conduit to gaining some access to an element to up your game, right? And then there's Dennis Haysbert who has to sort of renounce that to get back to the phenomenology of physics or, or like the, <laughs> right, the reality, right? It's like everyone needs the opposite always, right? Like that's oh. the yin and yang. That's the balance of life. Yes, he may be a caricature at times on the surface, but there is sort of a payoff to it, right? And yeah. it is played, like you said, by the great Dennis Haysbert, mm -hmm. the president in 24, Mr. Allstate commercial, just an absolute icon. He's also very decent at hitting baseballs. And he hit the final home run that was in the final game in the film. He actually hit oh. a home run. He was so excited that he didn't throw his bat. He just ran the bases holding his bat. I was wondering about that. As I was watching, I was like, I feel like this is like either a mistake and he just kept going with the scene. But that makes it even better. He actually hit a home run. That's so epic. I was epic. wondering about that. As I was like, because in my head, I don't know. I was like, I don't think I've ever seen a, a baseball player in the pros run around with the bat around the bases. I've seen it in Little League, like on accident and shit like that. But yeah, I've never seen that either. And what's funny is it's not against the rules. Um, It's a discretion call and there's nothing against it. It just seems scary, a dude running around the bases with a bat. It's not <laughs> hockey, dude. Like, I mean, I feel like the shortstop should be able to check them then if they can do that. What's funny too is uh, Chucky Ross, who's so old in this, that's he's so iconic. Uh, the old guy, the veteran, the Christian, he does the prayer. Yeah, he looks like he's like 55 at least. <laughs> uh, but we always talk, we're always in the search for like who is the like king of sports movies, and he's definitely not the king, but he might have the like strongest repeat of all-star sports movies because he's in major league he's also in rudy and he's also in hoosiers i don't know if there's anyone who's in three iconic sports movies more than him on significant roles if not major major roles also um, he's in a league of their own he's in a league of their own too yeah man it just keeps adding to the list he was an icon in the sports movie genre that we have to keep track of as we go on yeah. and when we capture those or tackle those ones i want to compare his role between this one as well uh we're talking about roles i just have another connection between these two movies actually is neil flynn those who watch uh are fans of the tv show scrubs he plays a janitor who always picks on jd he's in both these movies actually he's the first baseman in um rookie of the year and then he's a construction worker who is seen multiple times in uh cleveland uh, he's the one who hugs the punk rocker, actually, in the bar, right? He's kind of one of the go-to fans. So I thought that was interesting. He's in two baseball movies that we're covering, one as, like, a fan, one as a player. Uh, but he's definitely one of those ones, like, we're talking about, like, who kind of, like, character actors. Um, I know he was in um, The Fugitive with, <laughs> with Harrison Ford. But he's one of the ones we're going to have to track for sports movies now. Because uh, I know he shows up in a lot of action movies as as a usually, usually intimidating character or tough, funny guy. It's so funny how typecasts happen, right? Because once you star in one like sports movie, you get it a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, Haysbert, we just talked about, right? Mr. President from 24 was also in Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck just a few years later. Oh. Yeah, we talked about Wesley Snipes showing up in The Fan later. Mm -hmm. Wesley Snipes was also in White Men Can't Jump. Charlie Sheen was supposed to be in White Man Can't Jump, but he turned down the role, which went instead to Woody Harrelson. Um, who do you think would have been better in that role? Charlie Sheen or Woody Harrelson? Woody Harrelson. 
I agree. Yeah. It seems weird picturing Charlie Sheen playing basketball. <laughs> Being honest, yeah. at this point, yeah. after everything we know about him now, how like associated is with the kind of being like the chilled, laid back drinker who just picks up chicks at the bar. It just doesn't work with, with me seeing him as a as a basketball player. But it doesn't work for me either. No. But you know, it's fascinating to learn that he was a decent baseball player. He yeah. also admitted to Sports Illustrated that he was on steroids during this film. Not surprising. <laughs> what an all-timer, dude. <laughs> yeah, what an all-timer is right. The last funny sort of tie-in in this movie that I found was that Willie uh, Hayes, right? Wesley Snipes. When he shows up, you know, he's in that customized VW Beetle. And yeah. it's got that Royals Royce grill. It's a reference to uh, Up in Smoke, <laughs> the Chi Chong movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. It was called the Elegant Beetle Kit. It was popular in the mid 70s to 80s until Rolls Royce sued uh, the company that was creating those conversion kits. Super funny piece of trivia there. That, yeah. that, that'll win you your trivia night, people. <laughs> Any last takes on Major League before we get into Rookie of the Year? Um, yeah, but like you said, I, I'm kind of seeing as we talk about it, I do think this is definitely a predecessor for, like, like you said, Rookie of the Year. I think setting a type of bar that could be easily translated into kids' movies, actually. I think it's one of the things that this one did well. Like, like you said, I mentioned Revenge of the Nerds earlier, earlier 80s movie, right? As we're getting closer, this is 89 to like 90. Like the, the bar of uh, raunchiness and filth is like absent in this one, right? The most filthy thing we get in this movie, and it's one of the funniest parts that we forgot to talk about, is when the coach pisses on the contract that the veteran player tries to give him, right? He says, see here, it says, I don't have to do any calisthenics I deem's not worthy. And the coach is like, let me get that. And he unzips his pants in the middle of the field and just pisses on the contract, right? It's like they don't show him actually pissing on it. It's just, it's just a sound effect. That's literally the only, like, like you're saying, like, piss fart kind of humor you get in this one. It's all kind of a lot of slapstick comedy, just joking, right? And then the shenanigans stuff, right? The pranks. Um, and it, it's actually a good balance. I'm not, like, saying it needs to be a bronch or anything like that. That's not my my uh, my thesis here at all. I'm just saying, like, I, you see something like this that opened at number one above rain man a lot of other movies right and i think you it kind of clicks you can sell this to a younger audience right and probably make more mm-hmm. right and that's where we get to those first wave of movies like we started covering when we started this podcast right with like mighty ducks rookie of the year we're gonna get to angels in the outfield right breaking down that formula into a more digestible movie and i think we'll, we'll see in the 90s getting away from flooding the third act i think is something that we might see or it might if we go back maybe they still do that i have to, I have to actually watch a little closer that's a great observation. I love that. You brought it back to the macro. A few things that I love too. I think this was such a like dude movie with some of the classic quotes. The womanizer stalker character. What was his name again? The guy with the romantic subplot? Jake Taylor, played by Tom Berenger. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's right. Jake Taylor, right? Um, I loved his David Hasselhoff hair, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> and he plays such a good sleazy playboy guy who has some quotable lines. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when he's flirting with Rene Russo and she's kind of nitpicking or complaining about all of his infidelities when they were dating. I guess we were inferring that he had a hookup with some other woman and he's defending himself for hooking up with this fan, I guess. It's kind of groupy, right? Because she's talking about how he gets underwear in the mail and there's always women waiting for him at the locker or after the games, right? The line where he says that some woman bet that she had a better body than Rene Russo, so he had to defend her honor. <laughs> There's just a funny cleverness to some of these quotable lines, to some of these sort of chauvinist lines. Um, uh, even I, I know we we critiqued it, but I thought it was slightly clever. The Charlie Sheen hookup being the moment where he gets punched in the face by Dorn, and then immediately told to strike the guy out. 
because no. Dorn's big arc was that he didn't care at all. He was totally tanking. Gotcha. He wouldn't die for the ball, right? And so inadvertently, he kind of inspires him to even try because he, you know, he brings back some some sort of competitive fury, right? This young guy hooking up with his wife makes him feel the the need to show up, right, and play ball and prove his like metal, prove his manliness on the the baseball field. And uh, so I think there was some payoffs. There's definitely a subtle misogyny throughout the whole movie, but it's embedded in the culture. Kind of the plot too, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a nefarious yeah, woman. Yeah. It's basic misogyny. Like they're taking yeah. our sport. Like she's not supposed to do that. And the whole plot leans into that, right? <laughs> don't give you any give you any reason to root for her, really. No, she is evil from start to finish. The last shout out was the the Asian groundskeepers who get their like bit as the fans in the montage sequences. <laughs> And a random punk rock bar in Cleveland. I love that. Yeah, I just loved uh, all of the establishing thoughts of Cleveland, too. I thought it really captured the city well. And it totally took me to an 80s film. All right. Now, moving to Rookie of the Year. Let's quickly do our box office. This is July 9th through 11th, 1993. It opens in fifth place with just under $10 million as well. So it must have been a strong weekend or inflation happened quickly because it made not much less than Major League, but it was all the way down to fifth place instead of first place. It's also in the middle of summer instead of April, right? And it's rounded out at 53 million, so four more million than Major League. Opening this weekend, we have some bangers. We have some all-time bangers. I'm going to start with maybe the lesser renowned of the four, but one that we love, or at least we love the original, and it's Weekend at Bernie's 2. Did you ever see the follow-up to Weekend at Bernie's? I don't know if I've ever seen number two. I don't think so. Unless that was the first one I watched and I didn't know it kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, I feel like I started with the original Weekend at Bernie's. I don't think I've seen the sequel. Yeah, I don't think I saw it either. I remember forever seeing the original in Death Valley at a hotel that had a movie theater and a bowling alley. I'll never forget that. Don't remember seeing the second one at all. It's kind of weird. The, The plot is after witnessing the murder of the corrupt boss, Bernie, Larry, and Richard are blamed for Bernie's embezzlement and fired. Desperate to find the stolen two million and clear their names, the pair learns the fortune was hidden in the Virgin Islands and travels there in pursuit. Meanwhile, Bernie's corpse is partially revived in a voodoo ceremony by gangsters also looking for the money. I definitely remember that whole part with the voodoo ceremony and the gangsters and the tomb. I've seen a part of it. For a B-movie and a classical classic, there's some intrigue there as a choice. (laughs) There there is some pull there. Uh, Moving on up, we have In the Line of Fire. Cows in the Field recently covered this with Bilga. They sold this film to the T, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, screenplay by Jeff McGuire, starring Clint Eastwood, Renee Russo again, John Malkovich, Dylan McDermott, Tobin Bell of the Saw franchise. I mean, that's a killer cast right there across the board. It's about a Secret Service agent who becomes taunted by calls from a would-be killer who has detailed information about the agent, including the fact that he failed to save President John F. Kennedy from assassination. The caller is revealed to be an ex-CIA assassin, and the agent who is investigating a threat to the current president is determined to not let history repeat itself. I've seen this one a few times on VHS. My parents loved it. It is great. It's a really good adult spy thriller. Have you seen this one? No, that one does not ring the bell. Gotcha. Oh, well, that's fun. Uh. Next one, son-in-law, Polly Shore. Carla Cugino and Patrick Renna <laughs> from the Mighty Ducks. You want to just rehash this one real quick, or what? What's your initial takeaways from Son-in-Law? What do you? What? what uh, where does it take you? Son-in-Law's. It's up there on my Polly Shore list, but it's not like the best Polly Shore one. 
I'll blatantly say this. I love Polly Shore movies. <laughs> like, I don't think they're trash at all. They're hilarious. He's one of those people who has a distinctive comedy style. And he rode that wave as hard as hard as anyone can ride that wave. Um, maybe a little too hard, some might say. But you know, this is this is definitely a, like a classic '90s comedy. Like I said, for me, I think oh man, I think Paulie Sharp definitely. Like Biodome is up there, and Sino Man is one of my favorite ones for sure. But this one's up there too. This one is one of the has a has a pretty big fan base, probably bigger than the two I mentioned. This one's actually a little more of a date movie than uh, all those other two I mentioned with Polly Shore. I think for that reason, it's one of the few you can actually, if you can take your girlfriend to see. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I have a lot of praise for, for Polly Shore. Yeah, my my top two Polly Shores are Biodome and In the Army Now, I would say. Oh, I forgot about In the Army Now. That was a good one too. <laughs> you had so many, man. Like so many just like, kind of flying under there. I wish he had a sports movie, man. Like he feels like he fits what we want to do but yeah like it could be cast in any of these any of these underdog roles like especially a team sport there's gotta be a spot for some kind of wiry little weird dude like him the other thing that's absolutely insane is that Polly shore and adam sandler never teamed up and did a movie together oh that would have been banger would it have been overkill i guess that's probably their fear is that they would have like canceled each other out because they were kind of doing the same thing i'll give this to son-in-law that cover where he's holding the pitchfork it's the most iconic cover of the 90s. Almost flat. Top That's five. Fair. Yeah, that is fair. Like, we always talk about blockbuster covers on here for sure. That's like a reoccurring theme. And that is definitely like one of those, like, like I said again, like all time blockbuster covers, kind of like the Evergreen cover. That movie was not, it wasn't a new release, but you could find it near the new releases for a very long time. <laughs> definitely. Another funny thing about Polly Shore is I, I recently listened to him on Joe Rogan. It's kind of sad. Like, he still seems super ambitious. And eager to be in films, to be in TV shows, to be active and involved and be cast in roles. And basically, like, he just hit a unspoken blacklist in Hollywood. He had a few bombs and they were just over him. And it's kind of wild if you think about, like, him and Adam Sandler in that sense as, like, parallel careers. Mm -hmm. Adam Sandler never, ever fell off. Ever. Right? I don't know if it was his publicitist, some sort of... X factor, what it was, but Polly Shore had such a transient and short lived career that yeah. just fell off a cliff, right? It's because also Adam Sandler had more control at a certain point over his product, right? He was able to get his people in there, like he had his studio. And even before that, right? He had, he earned enough money, enough notoriety where he, he had more, like I said, more control of the script, who he was working with. And this is before like the Netflix and all that stuff, even then, right? Where every year, if it wasn't him in the movie, at least a studio at some point was putting something out too is the other thing, right? That's one of the biggest differences is also maybe just their mindsets. It's like Adam Sandler, at least when we were fans, was already positioning himself as a brand. Like you said, building on that. We're not even talking about his uh, musical specials and CDs and all that stuff. That was like, you know, that was like a, a side piece that accompanied uh, the movies we saw, right? That was the next piece of thing that went with that, right? He's, he's very unique in that way, actually. Very smart. In terms of being a businessman like that. And unfortunately, like you said, for Paulie Shore, like he was never in a position to really capitalize on that. But to speak to your point though, in all the revivals of different careers and stuff like that, from Macaulay Culkin, who's gonna get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and stuff like that, I'm with you. I'm surprised that Paulie Shore hasn't been given some sort of cameo role or something like that. Like even like um just play Dookie Hauser, I can't think of his name right now from How I Met Your Mother. Oh, it's gonna drive me crazy, right? Uh, but again, using that reference, how I met your mother kind of revived his career, right? I'm surprised he never got that chance to get to get that role because, like I said, he's has such a big piece of the '90s nostalgia is kind of his. 
Yeah, we're talking about uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Yes, Neil Patrick Harris. Thank you. I remember his three names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't coming to me either. Yeah, right now we're having a bit of a revival too. Like Brendan Fraser. Yeah, I that's feel, feels his like his buddy from uh, yeah. we just mentioned Encino, Encino Man, right? He he was our caveman in that. Exactly, and in the opening monologue of the Oscars last year, they had a reference to Encino Man. Oh yeah, and I was I think I was tweeting, let's have the Pauly Shore revival. All right, we've had Brandon Frazier. Good, I'm stoked for him, but I want Pauly Shore. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a bad time though for him to have a revival too, though, because he is like the ultimate nepo baby. Like his mom, I, I didn't know this until I listened to the interview. His mom is Mitzi Shore. She's the founder of the comedy store oh, wow. in Hollywood. Yeah. So it's like she is the center of comedy for decades. Like she owned it. She was like the matriarch. There's a fascinating movie just about like his life with his mom and his oh. mom's life, you know, like to get like just of the comedy store. There's plenty of content that it could be made that he could be involved in. Yeah, it's just it's a curious the curious story of Polly Shore, like what he's even done. Like, you know, like they couldn't capture or catalog or chronicle on that. Joe Rogan's are like two and a half hours. And I listened to the whole thing because I was so stoked when I saw Polly Shore on the list. But I also still felt like there was a huge gap or lacuna. Like, where was Polly Shore in these years? Like, what was he doing? They did you know, Rogan didn't ask those questions. They were mostly focused on like Polly Shore's yearning to be back in the game. And his frustrations that no one was ever sending him scripts or opportunities or roles. I was fascinated to learn that. I thought he had pivoted or had like a drug issue or something. You know, I didn't yeah. know he'd just fallen off. I didn't know that it wasn't by his own doing. Like he didn't have a drug issue or a major one, at least, or an alcohol issue. Yeah. It was just the zeitgeist flipped or switched and he wasn't on board anymore. He didn't create Happy Madison and he was kind of just cast off. Um, it happens. It just it's weird when it does happen. Definitely. Especially someone as big as Polly Shore. Few actors can truly like sell a movie for a decade based on like their namesake alone. If it was a Polly Shore movie, like us and our buddies, every teenage boy was there. Mm-hmm. Or we were renting it, right? Very true. <laughs> just he didn't have the staying power. He wasn't able to like remarket his name, revive himself for the next generation. Anyways, the last movie. For the opening weekend of Rookie of the Year is The Firm, John Grisham story, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Tom Cruise, Holly Hunter, Jing Hackman, a ton of people. Everyone knows it's one of the great courtroom dramas. It's a thriller about a young lawyer played by Tom Cruise who joins a super prestigious law firm, only to discover that it has a sinister dark side. The company is laundering money from a mob boss. It's getting clients off charges, and it is even murdering its own lawyers who threaten to blow their cover. The FBI comes calling to gather evidence and the Tom Cruise character is caught between a rock and a hard place, his life and his liberty. Um, I think my mom watched this every year. (laughs) The film's cover, VH Cuts cover, so ominous. It's black. It has Tom Cruise running. (laughs) I remember thinking it was super boring as a kid. Always thought it was really, really dull looking. Just muted fall, autumnal colors. I think it's set in the South. I think it's in like Georgia or something. Uh, and believe it or not, I don't know if I've sat through it from start to finish. I think it's great. I've heard it's great. <laughs> it's this crazy association in my brain of like a parents movie that got stuck there. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this was the parents movie. I would be watching the Pauly Shore movie upstairs. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of parents movies I I, I wanted to watch and then I love like Aaron Brockovich. Green card, I don't know if that counts as like a romance, whatever. 
you know, some of them I'd, I would just sit and watch, but for every reason, the firm never appealed to me. In the Line of Fire, I loved 13 Days. You know, I could name a thousand, but not this one. Strange. Anyways, have you seen it? Yeah, actually, just recently. Oh. Within the last year, I watched it on HBO Max or something like that. It was actually after we were doing one of our uh, runs of a bunch of Tom Cruise sports movies. It came up on my list. And I ended up clicking on it to watch it because like, it was one of those ones that was always on at your house. Never, se- never seen it in its entirety. But like you said, knew the cover right away. I'm like, I'm going to check it out. Um, pretty underrated, actually, mm. in terms of Tom Cruise movies. Um, I get why it has like those boring vibes for sure. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good thriller. It's fun in the way almost like the separate wives is very, you know, it's about kind of like about cult mentality with the sperm and stuff like that. Yeah. No, it goes good. Actually, if you watch uh, Jerry Maguire, because mm. it's like the other end of the spectrum versus charisma versus lawyer who's kind of going in with charisma. He's going to lose his charisma and kind of has his worldview shattered of what it is to be a lawyer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. I will say that it's a good one. Is it set in Georgia? Isn't it in like Atlanta? Do you know? Yeah, it's in the it South? is in the South. I think it is in Georgia. Yeah, that's one of the distinction points. He moves from New York, New York to Georgia. That's that's one of the selling points. To make more money there with with this salary, it's like I make one hundred twenty here in Georgia versus sixty five or whatever in New York. That was in like nineties. <laughs> I think I've seen it. I think so. It's the same as Major League for me, where it's so embedded in the uh-huh. second hand in the in the reverberations of the film that I like default say I haven't when I'm unsure. But then I'm getting glimpses. It's one of those things I haven't seen in the past 10 years. That's for sure. So it's pretty high on my list now. Um, so we got Son-in-Law. We got The Firm. In the Line of Fire. Weekend at Bernie's 2. You got one ticket. One opportunity. I'm trying to think of the Eminem lyrics to 8 Mile. <laughs> you got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. What are you going to see? Oh, man. I think I'm going to go with In the Line of Fire at this one. Because I've like seen all these other ones for the most part. Not Weekend at Bernie's 2. But I think in the line of fire is one, like I said, I haven't seen it. I do want to see. And it'd be good to just see in the theaters. I can't imagine even Bernie's 2 being a good theater movie, to be honest. I imagine the theater's just like empty. Maybe a couple fans like the first one. But yeah, that's a total blockbuster rent and get popcorn in a video game. That's when you watch Weekend at Bernie's 2. Uh, so I'm going to go with in the line of fire. Good call. I'm going to go with the firm. I got it. Just to at least solidify that I'd seen it or to fix a glaring hole in my watch list. So... Great choices. I'm stoked. Those that's that would be an amazing double feature in my mind yeah. or in many people's minds. Like there's a whole section of like 90s aficionados or like 90s classicists now. Uh-huh. Um like a whole group of critics. And uh, you know, I, I would I would say Matt Belenke kind of fits in there or Hit Factory Pod, that podcast covers 90s stuff. And then there's Shot the Movies, which does the like Polly Shore side more. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, we're now at the period where like that generation has its uh its cultists. I'll call him. I don't mean that in a super loaded way at all. And all I wanted to say was the firm and inline the fire for a certain subset or a certain demographic are like two top shelf, must see once a month. They show up in some reference films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great choices for both of us. So, rookie of the year. We've seen this one a million times. It's one of the ones we have to cover. Think Justin Peterson from the uh, Average Joe's Movie Club casts. I think he he picked it for a draft pick. Leave so. Yeah, because he was talking about his kids, his boy saying like, pitcher's got a big butt, what yeah. you just brought up. Yeah, a classic. The broken arm, the superhuman arm, the whole visual gag of him throwing super fast. I loved it. It brought a huge smile to my face. One of the great okay. 90s films. What did you think of it? It holds up. Like I said, one of the great 90s films. 
Um, I didn't realize how much of a like predecessor this one was for like Angels in the Outfield, actually. All right, because mm-hmm. Angels in the Outfield comes out the year after, I think. I, I, I'd have to Google it. I think it's 94. But I mean, in a good way, I think Angels in the Outfield took some of the best parts of this one, honestly, and kind of made some of it better. In terms of I'm talking about like Stedman being the father figure with that George Knox actually adopting the kids and really like being a part of their like development, a critical part of the plot, right? This one, Stedman's just a, it's a cool story. Like, you know, your uh, favorite baseball player is going to be like your father figure, right? They have that going on in it. And I think Angels and Outfield kind of does that too, but pulls the heartstrings more with the with the adoption of the kids and whatnot. And also the scores are very similar. I think Angels and Outfield just really like knew how to build up the swell a little bit more, but they definitely got that from this because this one has a good, um, kind of jovial bounce around town like like you're going to the to the game circus you know having fun to the big um not like epic but like marching towards victory sound they have, they have a good balance out in the scores i think definitely get that in uh, angels in the outfield as well they build off that uh but like you mentioned i i forgot how iconic this one was but even beyond like you said but we mentioned like pitchers got a big but for me this is actually like the first gary Busey role I remember him from right next it would be lethal weapon because my dad watched the shit out of that movie it was always on my house and he's awesome in that i love him in that one too but this is like this is the first one where like we like i said we'd put on tv on the vhs all the time and he was just he plays a pitcher pretty well i think i think that's one of the things he does pretty well in this he plays a pitcher and it's, it's one of the roles where he's not just gary Busey actually you know what i mean like we, we know gary Busey now as just being gary Busey. we're talking about these characters actually like Polly Shore, these iconic characters from like the 80s and 90s who can kind of just get away just being themselves. Gary Busey is definitely that, right? He just gets these cool cameos or he's crazy with the crazy eyes. And this one, is not, it's not that, right? It's actually like, it's a fun trajectory of his character where Henry Rollingarder shows up, like you mentioned, with his you know, superpower ability to throw the ball and he wants the autograph and he doesn't get it until he earns his respect. Right. And it's it's both professional and heartwarming is one of the things I find. Right. Even as an adult looking at it, it still holds up like because this is something for kids. Right. It's the most outlandish plot imaginable. Like you get to play in the major leagues. We talked about this. It's very much the daydream come true. I think that's a difference between major league and this one. Right. Major league is like your worst nightmare if you were a pro. Right. You don't want to get drafted on this team. Right. You don't want to be there. Whereas rookie of the year, I think that's what makes it so timeless. Is it's just a daydreaming of not just I want to be in the pros one day. It's what if I was in the pros today, right? With the super, I think it just holds up the simplicity of the plot. And I thought it was, I thought it'd be too slapsticky. Now I thought the idea of him breaking his arm it would just be too like hard to get over. Like the idea of a kid playing baseball, but the pace of like like I say, loading up those first two acts with all the fun of being a kid first and then throwing in the professional aspects that he has to overcome. Then you have the fun thing with Chet. It actually balances really well, where it's just a fun story where you can just be on board with and you forget how stupid it is. Even as an adult, that was one thing that really surprised me when I watched it. I was, I was watching this with my wife. And I'm like, I'm like, I know I'm going to like this, but I'm like, I don't know if my wife's going to like this. She might think this is like just dumb. Like, why is the kid playing baseball? You know, like, you know, why, why, why are they do this? Why that? It, it was the opposite. Like I said, she she remembered like the the pitchers got a big butt. But one thing she was mentioning was like, you know, I gotta say, like, the, I actually like Gary Busey's character in this. Like, she didn't call him Gary Busey, but she's like, I like Chet Stedman in this. Like, it's subtle, it's fun, uh, it works because honestly, the mom's not a very good actress in this. <laughs> one of the things I think is we're talking about Major League earlier and how it just does the worst. It's misogynistic; it doesn't do shit with its female characters. This one has an interesting 
it doesn't play as well the moral of the story or the the illumination that his mom who's a single mother right and just to summarize has been telling him his whole life that his dad used to play baseball uh was i don't know if she says he's a pro but he's a good pitcher or whatever right and we find out the whole reason she says this is because she wanted him to have someone to look up with and in the end we find out mom was the pitcher right it doesn't play off today right it's this weird story of like mom doesn't want to be a role model for some reason it's one of those ones like like I feel like Mrs. Doubtfire still works well, the ending and stuff like that. But this is one of those ones where I feel like the moral of the story had the glaring hole, but all the other stuff still holds up pretty well where you don't really care. That was just the one thing I feel like it has this it's the opposite of um Major League, where it's blatantly misogynistic. This one has this weird, subtle for some reason the single mom doesn't have enough confidence to be a role model, which I never really thought about as a kid. But as an adult, it's one of those things that stands up. Uh but that's part of the fun of watching this one too, though, as an adult. That's a fascinating read. I don't know how to interpret that. I didn't wasn't even thinking too much about it. I always love the reveal when he looks in the glove and sees yeah. the mom's name, right? And looks at the mom. I will disagree. I kind of like her acting. I will say that oh, yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe it's just because like as a kid, it was so larger than life like the scene where she's in the flower shop and he's on the road playing road games uh-huh. and she's watching the more he has to go like hit the first time yeah when she tells off the shitty boyfriend and they have that great moment when she slams the door together there's all these moments between him and his mom that resonated emotionally for me as a kid uh-huh. and as an adult i think they in an uncanny way like doubly resonated because uh-huh. like they resonated again like wow this still is actually decent it's not like completely wince inducing uh-huh. um, like i'm not recoiling from this emotional material when i thought i might be like as you said like i wasn't yeah. sure how i was going to view this movie as an adult and secondly because i remembered how much these scenes got me as a kid like how much not wisdom but how much emotional depth they imported into me. Like I thought so much about all of the relationships in these movies. Like there's a realism that I was taking from it. That's not there. You know what I mean? Cause it's just absurd. Like when he goes into the locker room for the first time and no one knows who he is, I think he just wants an autograph, right? It's absurd. They got to know who he is. He has press conferences. They just hired a 13 <laughs> year old kid. Everyone in the organization is going to know who this kid is, right? There's so many yeah. scenes that just like breach logic on a way that like as a kid, I'm just not on that level. Yeah. And I'm just picturing like, whoa, how weird is this to be a kid? And like, they don't know who you are, but you're on the team suddenly. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And it's funny to watch as an adult and see how poor your logic skills are as a kid, but to see how those poor logic skills enhance the movie. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, So that was kind of going on as well. Cutting back to that flower shop scene where she's watching and like cutting flowers and then she loses it. I think it is a good slow reveal. Like you're suddenly like seeing like, wait, she likes baseball. She really cares about baseball, even though she's kind of the productive mother about her her child, right? And wants him to just like enjoy the game and is worried about the ramifications of him being a major leaguer. And then she's, you know, getting so amped. And it I think it does pay off in a bit that like they are seeding this very subtle reveal later that she is a baseball player right you can tell like she has a love for the game funny thing is i read that she actually she hits her head on the lamp in the very end she gets so yeah Yeah. and she actually did they kept the shot and she was actually like really (laughs) in pain i love when they keep shots in movies from like the painful moment that should be on the b-roll or on the blooper reel (laughs) but i also read that she's a i never watched the show but i think uh chicago pd she was like a lifetime or like a throughout the series she was a key character on that Okay. So that that's kind of a great tie-in because this film is really a Chicago Cubs film. You know, yeah. it's great. All these movies, 
Angels in the Outfield, Anaheim, Major League Cleveland. This film, it's such a Chicago movie. And when him and his buddies go to the baseball field, right? When they go to Wrigley Field in the beginning, it does give you those vibes of Angels in the Outfield and them watching the game from the outside and then getting to be on the inside, right? And he's like, you know, just a fan yelling at Chet, you know, cut the stinky cheese, the high funky (laughs) cheese, right? I love the vernacular, just that feeling of being a kid and loving baseball. And I love how well it is enmeshed in the 90s of this idea that they gave you as a kid that like you could just have a freak accident or go to sleep one night and wake up suddenly like a superhero, right? Like (laughs) you had this like real belief that this stuff could happen, like whether it was like Richie Rich, right? Even Home Alone. Real. (laughs) Right. Because Home Alone. Yeah, he's just protecting a house, but there's this idea that a situation can somehow elevate you into an adult, right? Mm -hmm. That wish fulfillment is strong in this film and it works well. And as you said, or at least I think that you're referencing or hinting at, what's surprising about this movie is how straight face it actually plays the broken arm conceit. (laughs) I wasn't expecting it to play it that cold blooded. (laughs) I thought it worked so well for it. I loved it. When he breaks his arm, they have the funny montage of him with the summer with his arm out the the vehicle and in class where everyone's raising the hand and he can't put his hand down. Great stuff. But then when he gets the revelation that he can throw like 100 mile per hour fastballs, the visual reveals of it are great. Mm -hmm. The speedometer is great. The whole scene with the tradition of if there's a home run, you got to throw it back on the field and he throws it back and it goes across and the catcher goes back five feet when he catches it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Just well done, well directed, well executed, visually, tonally, comically, loved it. Yeah, it just gives it a zaniness. It's this like X-Men type superpower, but within this like realm of like, oh, what if physics do work with that? What if muscle tendons could break and somehow snap back in this crazy way? I remember thinking it could happen. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that that totally works for it. And there is a sort of, it's not a serious movie by any stretch. But it's not strictly goofy. It it balances it well. And what I think was interesting for me to learn was that Daniel Stern directed it. And he chose the film because he wanted something to comment on or he wanted he wanted to do a work that touched upon child entertainers and the exploitation of child entertainers after his experiences working on the Home Alone movies. Uh, which is fascinating to me, right? He was in yeah. Home Alone in 1990 and Home Alone 2 in 1992. Mm-hmm. And after observing, you know, Macaulay Culkin being sort of dictated by his domineering father, he wanted some sort of a project that gave kids in such a position their humanity back. And what a perfect subtext this yeah. offers, right? Like, this is the perfect film. For sure. And again, that's just like, because we're already talking about these connections, like, to home alone like right it's got mr duncan right the owner those who remember duncan's toy chest uh mm-hmm. the owner of that right you got uh obviously daniel stern appears in it too right who's marv and then john candy who's mm-hmm. in home alone one right all these little and he's known for doing that cameo i believe for free right it's interesting again having those kind of ties back in there and like still making use of that ecosystem with kids of that audience are really kind of like identified with or just like are familiar with or comfortable with. That's one thing I thought was interesting as I was watching this again, because I never really made all those connections, honestly, other than Duncan. What's wild is the studio really wanted him to hire Joe Pesci as Chet Stedman, 
which would have been terrible. You have to have yeah. a big hunky. Joe Pesci Gary. should have been the son of uh, what's his name? I guess it'd be Dan Dan Hedaya played him and played it right, Mister Fisher. Right, that that's who Joe Pesci would have been great for that. Like actually, you know, mm-hmm. he'd been being really really slimy in there. I can see right, and like just like Home Alone, get get you know get just get justice. That was another scene too, uh, where the son gets demoted and has to be a concession stand vendor at the last game because yeah. he gets oh, yeah. called out for uh, trying to sell the lead. Uh, what's the lead's name? In the- Henry. Uh, Henry Ian Nichols. Yeah. That scene, and then the other scene with again, because I like the scene, a lot of scenes with the stadium, see him in the owner's box. I like the way they separate the owner's box and the vibe in there. And then the scene when he actually goes down, he tries to pay for the hot dogs for everyone. They're like, "You're eleven bucks short." It's like, well, how much are the hot dogs? He's like, three dollars for a hot dog." Right? His his delivery of that line is kind of classic. It's kind of timeless, I will say. Right? Again, it's one of those ones that captures, like like you say uh, earlier, both the the joy and like mystique of going to a ballpark, both when you're a kid and even when you're an adult, right? I think that's one of the things him and the mom still, that's one of the things she, I think she performs a little bit. That's one area I can give her a lot of credit for is being in the stands and with the fans, right? Her demeanor up in the, in the box versus when she's in there rooting for Henry and she kind of brings them all around, especially when the kids, right? They kind of show up with him thinking they can just go into the locker room because they're in the know and they can't like, like you mentioned earlier, it reminds me of um, obviously of angels in the outfield, but it, it just captures the mysticism of, w- of what it is to like go to a sports event and really just be like wowed by everything. I think this one does a really good job of capturing that and really building up on it a little better with the Henry mania because Henry Henry's not good because I think that's one thing I didn't realize is I always thought it was a straight trajectory of like broken arm stardom. And it's not the case, right? The first game is a complete shit show, an absolute travesty. The first couple games are. Um, and I don't think I ever gave it that much credit. I always thought it was kind of like angels in the outfield in my mind. A montage gets us to the last game is what I always thought. And it's really not the case, right? He has to learn. He gets lucky, right? He's a few things as a closer. Then he has to get taught by Chet, right? We get the kind of the hero's journey, older guy thing. Um, and then we actually get some road games, right? It's not just a montage. Like the road trip is actually like a lesson in professionalism. That's one thing I didn't really realize. I always thought they were much more like more linear plot to where they get to him and his friends being jealous and all that. And they actually work towards it fairly well and built up. Like we mentioned, like you mentioned, I, I not, not you dropped that Daniel Stern had, had that in mind, like really highlighting the, like you said, the idea of like child stars being exploited. It does a pretty good job of, like you said, seducing you into it and then dissecting it. Part of that is offset with the romance between Henry's mom. And I guess you call it love triangle between Henry's mom, Jack, the manager, right? The guy, I love how the manager's just the boyfriend who just said, I'm going to be the manager. <laughs> That's the one thing. Like, I mean, kudos to him. I guess like, you see, you're you're there, try whatever. But like the fact that he, he got the role of manager was like just signing shit and getting her to sign it. I, it cracked me up, but it, it does add to the, like you said, the tension where she actually punches in the face. It totally lands like still today. Like you get hyped for that. But yeah, as it breaks down, I do like the strings that they pull Henry through. Henry is a, his journey is through a lot of characters, right? For him to come to these conclusions. It really is him trying to negotiate all these different adult figures in his ear, including his mom, including his mom's boyfriend, all these people, right? And figure out which ones he can trust. Watching it now, you know, that is more than an underscore. When you really break down this film, right? It's definitely pounded in there and in a good way, for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so much about playing for love of the game, right? Like the the moral of the story, the denouement is to go back and just play with your friends again, right? It's anti-capitalist film. I don't want to overly sell this, right? But the evil, the evil boyfriend 
his most disreputable attribute is his mercenary half, right? Like the fact that he's just like sees Henry as a means to money, right? And he's putting him in Pepsi commercials. He's signing contracts like to, yeah, better way to say it, right? He's a, he's a commercializable product. He is just a tool for him. And it's about respecting a kid's innocence, respecting their chance to have a love for the thing in itself, an inherent love for the game. I don't know if I followed up fully, but what's fascinating is that, as you pointed out, right, there's so many crossovers between Home Alone and Rookie of the Year once you realize Daniel Stern directed it. Mm -hmm. But he actually refused to cast Joe Pesci because he didn't want people to make any associations between the two. It's funny, too, though, like, I couldn't find like a real consistency here because like the studio wanted it, I think, and he didn't. So they're always like fighting back and forth Mm -hmm. because the studio was pushing him to also try to get Macaulay Culkin to play Henry. That would make sense at this point in time for sure. That's what I thought you were going to say at first. But he was he was unavailable because his father, right, who's kind of the impetus for this film, if you listen to Stern, demanded that he star in another movie called The Good Son, which was also a stipulation in his contract for 20th Century Fox Greenlighting Home Alone 2. Just some crazy behind-the-scenes stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, the other actor that the studio was pushing for, ahead of Thomas Ian Nicholas, is uh, Fred Savage from The Wonder Years. <laughs> uh, but he was in his final season of The Wonder Years, and he was a bit tired after you know working for five straight years. Now, out of those three, for you, which would you prefer? Fred Savage, Macaulay Culkin, or Thomas Ian Nicholas? Oh, easily Thomas Ian Nicholas. Fred Savage would have been trash in this one. <laughs> so would Ben Savage, his brother. <laughs> he might not have been old enough yet, but like, I, yeah. I, I like Wonder Years and Boy Meets World especially. I fucking love that show. But no, this 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 requires a different kind of charm that they don't have. And Macaulay Culkin's too cute for this role, right? He's too like blonde hair, blue eyes, unfortunately for this one. Like, like we know him from Kevin McAllister, Richie Rich. Like he doesn't fit this role. Those are all like, like you mentioned, like more like the Batman superheroes, right? They got the gadgets, they got the money. Like, you know, that, that was his thing, right? Like you mentioned, this is a little more of a, like get your powers kind of thing. A little more out there, like kid in King Arthur's court, his next movie, right? I think it's what Thomas Ian Nichols would be in, right? But he's a little older. I feel like he's a he's a perfect casting for this one. I think he does a good job of capturing the innocence and then really leaning into the professional elements of it too in a way that, I mean, I'm sure they're good, good actors that could have pulled off, but not to the degree that he did. I, I, I really identify him as, as Henry Rollingarder. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that Thomas Ian Nicholas is fantastic in this movie, actually, for a kid mm-hmm. actor. And... I get what you mean, because some kids actors can be cringy to watch. Afford- mm-hmm. you know, let's be real. At this age when they're going through puberty, you know, and your voice is changing and cracks at weird times. Sometimes it's tough on some of these to get good recordings, right? Because that's one thing I noticed. They got good uh, voiceovers uh, for him. Some are noticeable, some aren't noticeable. But they got some good ones. Uh, but it, it's kind of a fine line at this age, I think, when you're casting with for a, a role for a kid. Totally. I uh, recently uh, at our local Cineplex, they had an American Pie uh, showing where he was oh, there he was there i could have went and that event was actually uh organized and thrown by lauren knight who was on a escape to victory slash victory the sylvester stallone movie that we covered she's been on the pod uh, i think she's pretty close with him so we got to try to get him on for an interview we got to try to get him on because getting king's arthur's court we'll yeah. have him rehash it with us it's an underrated gem absolutely i think he might be sick of doing rookie of the year i think that's the one that everyone calls him out for yeah. is like his claim to fame, we want to do the underrated gem, the underdog. 
But as Rowan Gardner, he's great. One of the funny things in this film to me is the the coach, Marnella. He gets his name wrong every single time. And I, I found a list. He calls him Rulingfurter, Gardenhoser, <laughs> Ravelboozer, Rosenbagger, Runamucker, Rowan Gardner, Rulingruder, Rosenberger. And once does he call him by his correct last name. I love that fact. Um, oh, yeah. One of the better gags for sure in the movie. Like reoccurring jokes. Mm-hmm. Gary Busey has a fake mustache. That's pretty funny to me. Uh, oh, it looks pretty good. It looks good, right? A good fake uh, one. Yeah. And Daniel Stern not only directed this, but he is the slapstick comedic virtuoso of the film. He is fantastic. I have the same joy and glee watching him as I get like watching Jim Carrey in The Mask, watching, you know, Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura. I think he is a genius. I think these actors who could play slapstick caricatures in the 90s i mean it kind of goes all the way back to like buster keen and so forth but they're not as like much of daredevils but who do the kids based stuff and be mm-hmm. committed to it are unsung heroes i feel like too many actors are too cool for this today and oh, we don't sure. have them as much you know we have some jack blacks out there but you know jack black's getting a little older he's not doing it as much anymore man is this a vacuum in modern cinema and modern entertainment and Daniel Stern is great in this. He's so funny when he's choking on his sunflower seeds and can't right. speak. Yes. And he's he's like squeaking the line when he's cheering because he's stuck in the cage. That's oh, when ho- he gets stuck between the hotel doors. Love it's it. Just like borderline comic and like would probably give a lot of people trauma now. Like <laughs> certain audience members. Like I, I cannot agree with you more. Like watching this one, like when he shows up, like I said, you think Marv from Home Alone, which is, again is just iconic, just body comedy, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all he's here for. And I like that he's used like that again. The director putting himself in there uh, for a, a good like again. I I like the balance you get with him because it, it is like a sitcom where it's brought in just for laughs, but they're pretty hard earned laughs as, as, as I'm watching this. Like and they and they I, I don't know I don't know for you like they landed for me like you mentioned the sunflower seed one. Is the most baseball thing ever. And like when you talk about kids playing baseball, kids eating sunflower seeds and spitting them in dugouts, it looks like that. Like parents would have to tell us, like, stop eating so many sunflower seeds, you're gonna choke. You know what I mean? Or like, or if like, you know, don't go out there chewing your seeds, like pay attention and watch the ball. You know, like it's very like timely and accurate. It, again, I think the depiction of of just again, young kids at this time, it's 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 encapsulated pretty well as something that's you're not gonna ever see again. Kids go into a game, getting dropped off by their mom, right? And being, all right, here's a ticket, go. We see this in every sports movie in the 90s, and it stops around the time of sudden death. And then, like, the fan, you know, right? Movies about arenas blowing up, fans killing people, you know? Like, you know, there's a, there's an obvious shift there in, in, in the culture, and parenting culture, and what, what's allowed and what's not allowed. So that's one of the things I see when you see, like, Angels in Outfield and this one, you know? It seems almost seems like fiction, I would think, to some kids, right, in that age group. But that is a realistic thing, right? Like to get dropped off at a spot and get picked up later was socially acceptable up to a certain age. That's totally fine. To go walk up the street and go get some stuff and come back with your board and your bike, totally fine, right? That's not movies now, right? Movies like kicking and screaming are about team sports and it's all about group dynamics and stuff like that, just because, you know, we're very Culture is very afraid of going outdoors and very afraid of a lot of stuff. Uh, so, I mean, when you watch movies like this now, it, it is like weirdly like a nature documentary. Like, like, yes, kids used to go, not just go out and play in their yards, 
explore the cities and environments around them too without parents right or parents being aware that they're out in the place and they would check it or whatever right that's that's one of the things that i see this that's just like fascinating and uh and also why it's so hard to make good sports movies now right for these younger generations it's, it's just a different you're speaking to a different uh setup yeah i mean it's not as entertaining to watch him play Fortnite the whole time but <laughs> a quick shout out you know he does get some grief from his uh, mom's boyfriend for playing Game Boy. <laughs> Does he say something like, Game Boy won't get you anywhere in life? Yes. And I, my thought, though, was I, was I was like, that's actually a really good way of a- dealing with your anger, though, because he wasn't throwing a fit. He was quiet. He was playing his game by himself and kind of meditating. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, he wasn't playing Mortal Kombat. I think he was playing Tetris on there. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. Or was it Game Boy would make you stupid even better? Yeah. I think that was it, right? Such a paternalistic line. Such a oh, 90s yeah. parent line. I thought he was decent too. He's in a lot of 90s stuff. I, I, I want to know what else he's in on the top of my head, but I can't pinpoint it. Are you talking but about... Um, the boyfriend. The shitty oh, boyfriend. Oh, yeah. He's in uh, a ton of stuff at that he's time. He's always like the angry boss. Yes. Uh, always over the boss from like... uh he's Mitch's boss in Modern Family and stuff like that. But yeah, he's he always also, the guy in the suit giving orders usually. You also got to love uh, Henry's love interest, Becky, played oh. by... Uh, Chicago native Colum Jackson Durstein, the one and only Julie the Cat Gaffney. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I recognize that right away. <laughs> right away. Um, and you're talking about kids, you know, being able to go off and have some escapades, you know, unsupervised. And I love the the boat scene where they they make their own boat. That's a funny total association tie into Major League, right? Major League has the propeller joke in the bathtub. They're kind of have a propeller and a sort of makeshift boat. Two completely different ones. In Major League, the whole bathtub scene reminded me of Caddyshack, <laughs> an era where they had like sort of SNL type gags. They just threw in the movies because they seemed funny. I guess that that kind of ties into the whole Leslie Nielsen um, airplane style humor, right? That that scene particularly, that one joke was like some writer thought of it and it didn't fit in the movie. So they just kind of shoehorned it. This movie, I loved it. It was felt it's like this character building it showed you uh, his world really quickly and always fun to like just see kids having fun. They're fun outing, right? Always mm-hmm. Cheetos and Twinkies in movies. They had both of those in this movie. <laughs> For sure, right? They loaded up the snacks in the boat, man. His two friends, even though they don't have much screen time, were so memorable, even to this day. Like watching sort of like the slightly bigger friend on the boat be so stoked. Uh-huh. All of his gestures and smiles... In that montage sequence when they take the girls out, uh, they had stuck with me forever. Like they were still completely in me. Like he was such an iconic character in my mind. And I realized watching this, he has such a tiny part. Yeah. He doesn't say almost anything. When he gets mad, you know, and he finally forgives him. I thought that was way more of the film, like a major subplot of him being <laughs> absent from his friends. Uh, and and it's, it's like that. It's like a snap of the finger. The feeling that he's been alienated by his major league responsibilities, that he sort of lost a little bit of his childhood, that he gets it back in that moment. Yeah. The tension there. Um, I love, though, that you brought up the the Home Alone connection with the Cracker Jack owner here, the, the bumpkin. Same vibe, this innocent grandfatherly figure. His idea or his freak out or his incredulity about the $3 <laughs> hot dogs is hilarious. There's no better timestamp. Stadium prices represent times like nothing else. Like there's inflation oh, yeah. in real life and then there's inflation at the ballpark. That's <laughs> another level. <laughs> it's a whole other level, right? Um, and it gets it so well. The other thing that's hilarious in this that could be completely used as memes is Henry freaking out that he's going to get fined $500 for being late to practice. So the NFL fines players every week for like 60 grand, right? 
And his response that it's like a week of allowance, it's the same thought I have when I read like, you know, Tyreek Hill for celebrating too long in the end zone gets a $75,000 fine. The first thought of my brain is like, that's a year salary for me, for this dude doing this negligible thing. Uh, And it's just, it's so one-to-one for like that. We are the infants. We are the babies. We're the kids of society when we have to learn that they're getting these fines for doing nothing. And that's our sheer salary. (laughs) We're, we're literally like him in this movie saying like, that's my weekly allowance. That's That's my yearly allowance. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. A quick shout out though, to the dork who uh, actually did the math. And uh, he says it'll take him six years in the movie to pay off the $500. So if you do the math, you do the arithmetic, right? His allowance calculates to 160 per week. So he's making a buck 60. Not that bad. Not that bad. That's really good. That's good even before being a professional 11 year old baseball player, how old he was. I did not get that an allowance or tooth fairy money or any of that. That's for sure. Yeah. He was already banking yeah. it in, man. His mom must have been. Yeah, his mom was hustling as a single yeah. one. Shit. Yeah, yeah. At the flower, shop. That flower store. Or she was uh, good at uh, getting some sugar daddy mom- money from that uh, sleazy pseudo <laughs> agent. Like fucking forged her signature or some shit like that. I don't know. Something was going on. <laughs> they were embezzling money somehow. Yeah. I actually thought that her relationships were much better than the major league ones. They actually serve a function in the movie, both roles. At first, I thought it was just like the hated boyfriend trope, you know, like too yeah. lovey-dovey because I'd forgotten. And then I realized, you know, as it went on, oh, yeah, he's the sort he's of only throwing darts at Chet Stedman. He's like, why are you dance with my girl? And Chet Stedman is such a humble, lovable has been right. He has such a good character arc in this movie. I remember that as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, he's likable. You're rooting for him. He doesn't overplay like the surliness. You know, he's not friendly at first. Right. He's kind of curmudgeonly, but he's not like an asshole either he's just kind of got a ship on his shoulder and a grudge against kind of himself for being old <laughs> over the hill and do you believe his relationship with the mom yeah i i was really surprised uh any last thoughts on on a uh, rookie of the year no i well, one more similarity i like that the 80s loves to use the just like guitar dive bomb as a sound effect and it i just like it. it's, it's the same effect and it works differently for both these movies and that's effective so for like you're talking about uh, Gary Busey. I love when the arm breaks. It's just the guitar going, right? Like kind of Van Halen-y, right? And it's like, it sounds painful, right? And I, it's one of those like sound effects that always stuck with me. And now I hear I'm like, oh, it's just a guitar. I thought it was like, it's something else as a kid, I guess. But that same effect is like wild thing when he shows up as the kind of like, you know, alternative thrash metal. But he said like punk rock, kind of like pump up vibe. And I thought that was super like, it's like, like mentioned like, 89 was like this border year of like music right before grunge and stuff like that i just thought that that whale of just like both pain and somehow like tribe and rocking was just awesome uh that's my last like dorky sound observation for those movies uh love that my sound observation would be the the whimsical strings that are playing okay when he's running to catch the baseball at school right <laughs> when we have our inciting moment that whole scene is a microcosm of what like sports movies often do great right the slow motion reaction shots of everyone watching, right? The love interest, the bully, the shot of the impending baseball on the grass sitting there like a banana peel. The whole thing just builds up perfectly to when he falls. I will say that the actual landing of the fall felt a little anticlimactic. It didn't seem that painful <laughs> when he hits the ground, but I absolutely love that sequence. I thought it was just so well executed. 
it's not high cinema. <laughs> it's on a Scorsese Warner, but dab does it serve its purpose? Uh, I love the way the baseball is set like a banana peel and like Mario Kart, like it's there and you know it's there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you ever played Mario Kart, you know you can see that banana coming up and no matter what you do, you're going to end up hitting it. <laughs> also like the last cut, it's like a match cut where he throws the baseball up after the winning game and it lands back at Little League. Such an iconic sort of sports yeah. match cut. Uh, well done. Yeah, but for this one, it was mainly that like visceral experience of like the meta experience of thinking about like what it was like to watch this, having the memories of watching it again while watching it anew, sort of that, I wouldn't call it detached, it's not the right word, but like a, a double self. You're watching in a sense of deja vu, right? We talk about that a lot, but I would say that's my main takeaway from this was that immense feeling of deja vu. It's like crazy to feel what it's like to feel watching this as an adult, to think about watching it as a kid, to try to synthesize it too, to try to not think too much so that you can actually just viscerally watch it again. Because sometimes you're like so much like, or at least I am like, oh man, what was that like when I watched it as a kid that I forget to watch it anew? Just that whole dialectic that goes on was really fascinating with this one. So many of the scenes, like his press conference when he first shows up on the team. I don't know. It was just like, oh man, I'd seen this scene so many times, so many times. Um, and I enjoyed learning some of the, like, you know, the the behind the scenes stuff. I did deep dives, as you probably can tell from this on both of them, trying to like, just like research, like, you know, the mythologies behind these, some of the, for lack of a better word, I hate that it feels so reductive, but the trivia about these movies, usually I don't find that so interesting, but because these are like such staples of 90s culture and 89 or late 80s culture, but our childhoods, I wanted to like dig into that a bit. And probably my favorite one, this is my main last point until we go into our overrated and underdog final votes, is this has one of the most iconic illusions in any 90s sports kids movie, maybe any 90s sports movie, period. And it's when Henry first shows up at Wrigley Field, right? Uh. He goes to the player's entrance, right? He knocks on the door to be let in. That great moment, there's an old man. He pokes his head through the door. You remember this scene? It always reminded me as a kid of the Ace Ventura scene when he tries to go in a room and the guy asks about the clam chowder. <laughs> Just like a random, you know what I mean? Like a random gatekeeper. Uh -huh. um, at first, he doesn't let Henry in, right? Yeah. Then Henry has to reveal who he is. And the old man finally says, well, that's a horse of a different color. Now, I'm just going to throw this. You get one guess. You probably won't know. I didn't know on the top of my head. Do you know what this alludes to? It's a reference to a very iconic movie. I thought the scene was referenced to Wizard of Oz. You're right. Yes. It's when Dorothy and the gang right. enter Oz. Yep. Okay. That's what I, I thought when I watched it last time. Because I haven't seen Wizard of Oz in a long time. But I do remember like a munchkin or something like that. Like, I might be wrong here. But, like, pop it up and tell them no. And they, yeah. Perfect. You got it. 100. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was amazing. Such a, such a witty mm -hmm. tie in. The same feeling, right? Of a kid going into the Major League Stadium to be a baseball player as going to Oz, right? Yeah. This fantasy land, this hyper real. It works colored... really well. Like you said, Stern's like premise. Yeah. Of, right. That's the barrier, it. right? Between childhood innocence. And like you mentioned, capitalism, entering the workforce when we talk about child work, labor and all that stuff. And like, again, we said earlier, like the nefarious, like worrying about the stranger, right? That's the other thing that's definitely a part of that, of the journey of the yellow brick road, right? And then coming home again, right? Like the whole idea is like wanting to return home. That's the movie starts Little League Baseball. It ends Little League Baseball, right? It's uh -huh. about like maybe like go, drifting too far from home, learning that friends and home are what matter. And coming back it definitely kind of works like this kind of has an interesting subtext also i gotta say the other thing it does pretty well is like i said gary Busey does like pass down that great knowledge to him that one day your gift will be gone like you will be me 
and it'll happen much sooner than you think he is. I think what he says too, right? And of course, we get the scene where he slips, which again, I thought I agree with you. That is one of the more iconic scenes. It, and it really pays off when it happens again and he re-enters himself, right? Because mm-hmm. it works for our breaking our disbelief and re establishing that disbelief too, right? The idea that one could be one, one versus one on that. I, I do I do think that's a very good strategy. And it's very cringy because right, you don't want him to slip again, right? It's one of those great audience moments where the audience can kind of hold their breaths for a little bit. Something that I think we usually get in baseball movies with usually like a pop fly that's going to go like we get with the foul ball and stuff like that. It's very common. So, yeah, I, I think that was a great point to point out. Yeah. And the fact that he falls again and loses his supernatural ability, right? And has to outmaneuver reality to actually figure out how to get three outs, right? We've already talked about the trickery at the base where he hides the ball yeah. and baits the guy. I gotta ask then, you because I've I've totally it's funny because again I like the banner of how they how they put together the trick play with the uh the powder right and have yeah. the first baseman hold the ball. Can you do that in a baseball game? John Candy calls it as like we haven't seen this since like 1934 when someone played so and so, right? In that moment, I did I kind of wanted to Google and see if that happened, but I didn't. But have you ever seen anything like can you even do that? I was in the same boat. And I know that there's so much trickery that I never knew of in baseball. Every time I watch like a playoff, you know, series, there's something new that happens. Like someone steals home in a crazy way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or something uh-huh. bizarre happens. But I wanted to Google that as well. And I didn't. And I have no idea if you can do stuff like that. They have tons of rules though, like, you know, about balking. There's all these rules that once you're in some position, you can't do that as well, right? Like once a pitcher establishes himself, once he looks like a certain amount of times, he can't look a third time. All these types of things. There's so many micro roles that as someone who only played a few years of Little League, very young, I don't know. The intricacies fascinate me, but I'm not in any way uh, like encyclopedic when it comes to baseball. So well, let's look that up. Let's t- no, let's they, bring well, that up on our next baseball movie. Maybe. Yeah. So listeners, send us their uh, examples of trick plays would be, would be helpful here. Or yeah. audio, because we're talking about also we've been major league. We didn't reference this though. One of the Funniest parts of Major League is the catcher basically chirping the batters to help out wild thing, right? Before he gets his glasses, mm-hmm. right? To get like a, a pinch pop fly pretty much, right? An easy pop fly and stuff like that. That was one of the unique things I don't think, maybe off the top of my head, I've seen in baseball movies in a while, right? Is mm-hmm. that repetitiveness of the catcher and using with that kind of utility, mm-hmm. right? I know we get catchers kind of making fun of batters here and there. But that was one where it was kind of with a purpose. <laughs> like I've never seen. So, but another thing I'd love, love to see, I don't know if they mic up the, the catchers or the umps like they do the NHL with the rest, but I'd love to see if anyone can send us a link to any catcher chirping a batter. That would be awesome. We're, we're talking about one of the things I very, very quickly referenced at the beginning of this episode. And it's the fact that there's a lot of things I was reading in Rookie of the Year that were hearkening back to Major League. Yeah. And they all come down to this. The final three pitches in Major League are all strikes right they're all mm-hmm. the, the pitcher giving him the one but they're all fastball straight down the pipe no trickery no change up no curveball no nothing and the great thing is the catcher is just working that batter right playing mind games right the last one was a strike this can't be a strike again and then he throws it just a fastball strike again what's fun to me is that rookie of the year i feel like is almost winking at that ending because he has to throw three strikes as well which is of course one last batter uh-huh. but he cannot throw a fastball he can do anything but a fastball so he has to throw like change ups and do the exact opposite, right? Mm-hmm. And I felt, honestly, felt like Daniel Stern had Major League in his mind, or whoever was writing the screenplay. I should have his name on the top of my head. I don't. Um, it's Sam Harper, right? Sam Harper, yeah. who wrote the screenplay, 
So Sam Harper or Daniel Stern, whoever put this in, I felt like they were sort of referencing and tweaking or making a riff or inverting Major League with that. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a ton of bass signal sequences where like the coach sends an elaborate and overwrought like set of symbols to the third base coach who sends it to the first base coach. Yeah. And it's, it's a Major joke. League. Both movies do that, especially Major League. But there's once or twice in Rookie of the Year, they're doing it too. And I was like, oh, that's got to be a nod to Major League, seeing it so close. Together. I was Maybe thinking not. like when Daniel Stern's character comes out and gives like the ridiculous sign he was making fun <laughs> of that scene, I thought too. They could be, right? With Like watching back, so like I said, we watched it in reverse order. Mm-hmm. So when I was watching Major League today and they like, like you said, they have like that symbol, that sign going from each section of the field. I immediately thought of Daniel Stern just like, remember, he looks like he's like batting a bug or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He's like, swatting a fly. Signal. That's the signal right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love that swatting the fly moment, oh, yeah. right? So like said, his his ability to just pop into this movie at the right time. Uh, you can't like you can't discount that. It's something that it's either done right or wrong. This is an example where it's just done right. His advice on like conserving food, his ridiculous advice, man. He's the unsung hero for me. So overrated underdog for both. Where do these fall for you? Actually, I gotta go for both of them. This was an easy one. Both underrated. Mm-hmm. Uh it's hard to put these as overrated ones. Like I said, like major league was one I'd didn't remember very much, but watching it, it's a one I'm surprised I haven't watched more, to be honest. Even at my age now, it's one I'm surprised I didn't go back to a little sooner. And Rookie of the Year held up in a way I didn't expect it to. I just didn't, really didn't think. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Like I said, I loved it as a kid. It's a big part of my childhood. Um, I thought the premise would be harder to overcome. And that just wasn't the issue. It's like I said, it's an easy movie to just get on board with, have fun with the premise, the basic plot. And I didn't realize like how much of this is in like i said angels in the outfield like that next gen like little giants like that next generation even um big green like that next generation of kids movies are coming like like i said this is like an interesting kind of like border piece being in 93 versus the next wave that's going to come like i said it's gonna be more team focused more focused on the family like as a as a structural unit within each of these players that becomes another theme that we've talked about listen to any of these early episodes that we covered we talk about like mighty ducks and like little giants so yeah i think it's like actually it's a little more unique than i recalled in a lot of good ways so for that reason i think it's underrated i think it's one you can watch with a pretty critical eye actually if you want it you'll probably come away a little more surprised than you anticipate right you might come in here thinking it's a lowbrow 90s kid schlock or whatever mm-hmm. um i think it's it's more than that it's it's a legitimate baseball baseball classmates one of those just baseball iconic movies that you you gotta watch if you're on that list of baseball movies throw this one on there yeah uh with rookie of the year i I completely agree right there's an emotional realism that somehow shines through right the absurdity of the premise um of a kid playing baseball that crazy ability to reconcile the two tonal halves of that movie is a feat right it's like a triumph of Daniel Stern, his directing ability. He he puts himself in there as the, the sort of comedic relief. He, right? He's the only one who's truly silly in it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it works. He's like the perfect amount of silly. And it held up in ways that I wasn't expecting. So Rookie of the Year for me is an absolute underdog. It's also like not the first one that many people go to. It, definitely there's diehard Rookie of the Year fans. But it, it sometimes gets outshined by some of the other 90s yeah, like the sandlot. I feel like yeah. it gets lost by the Sandlot. Yeah. Mighty Ducks even. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's such a overshadowing movie. It's awesome. But Even Angels in the Outfield for us, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so underdog for me. Uh, for me, Major League, I understand its importance now. I, I get why it's so iconic for its time period, for what it did, for setting precedents. 
but I would call it overrated. I I think that it like is the first thing on so many lists. Often it's like considered like the OG sports comedy. The announcer's great, but he's not like the greatest for me. He's funny, like just a little outside. Like he has some classic lines that have resonated throughout culture. I respect its ripples and impact on baseball culture yeah. and movie culture and sports movie culture. Absolutely. I just think it gets too much credit. I feel like the movie is more enjoyable for its extracurricular stuff almost (laughs) than what's actually in the movie. And like the romantic subplot bugged me a little bit. Mm -hmm. It felt a little slapdash. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not trying to hate on it. I'm just trying to say that like it's going to be brought up if you do a sports movie draft 99 times out of 100. Rookie of the year, it got brought up, but I'd probably say probably like 37 times out of 100. And I don't think that's like indicative of quality. And that's why I want to kind of bring it back to earth a little bit. It's just like one of the go-tos. It deserves to be for history. But for me, I'm going to just say like, it's not better than most sports movies. Actually kind of like, I think slightly, slightly in the middle of the pack. So mid-tier. Yeah, mid-tier. Good, fun, classic. Glad we covered it. And I thought it made a perfect double feature. So I'm looking forward to doing some more of these. We have some more lined up in the future. We've been brainstorming. Any ones that you're looking forward to doing soon of these double features of the classics? Oh, man. Well, like I said, like I, I drafted I, Tanya. I know it's not a classic, but I am determined to like we just had that talk about recency bias. <laughs> that is my movie. That is like for sports movie is my recency bias movie is like that's just an awesome movie. So like I said, I, Tanya and I think Blades of Glory is one I think I'm looking forward to. Because I think they're very opposite. I think that's a pairing we were talking about uh, a little while back. And I think that's my hashtag is like, I, Tanya, needs to be in this fucking, needs to be in the pantalon of fucking sports movies. Uh, I'm going to save it for when we get to it. But I think it's a highly just like, like, I mean, I feel feel like you tried to turn me on to that movie for so long and I didn't watch it. And when I finally watched it, I was like, that was a disservice to myself. Yeah, it's a tour de force. It's almost like a great gospel. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Reminds me of like Fargo or something. It's that good. Yeah, That's a good way of looking at it, actually. I didn't think about that. It's great. Um, I think that would, as we said um, when we were texting the other day, go hilariously well. You could go two ways with that. We, we could do Blades of Glory and keep it sport to just like have complete polar opposites, right? Like there couldn't be any two different films, even though they're both about figure skating. <laughs> or you could do something like Foxcatcher. I don't know if you've seen that yet. It's another one of my unsung films. But I feel like Foxcatcher. No, Catcher's... I haven't seen that, but I do maybe want to do that with a wrestler or something like that, actually. That's I'm actually thing. looking for I think Blades of Glory because I do think I, Tanya has a lot of comedy in it. It's a dark comedy. It has a yeah. weird balance of like of looking at some pretty dire situations and finding some just outright humor in them, like in your face humor. Uh, there's some lines that like deliver like conversations you have privately. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. yeah. a level of dialogue I, th- I think I was getting from that. I might feel like uh, something that's just missing. I think from today's cinema, if I'm being honest, like dialogue that sounds like people talking on uh, I, Tanya really nails that. Agreed. Hard agree. Yeah, that'll be fun. Antipodal films, right? One's like Cheez-Its and the other one is like Gruyere cheese and, <laughs> and uh, macadamia nuts or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like eyebrow, <laughs> lowbrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some other fun ones, maybe The Water Boy in the Longest Yard. Definitely. Um, another one I'm kind of stoked on doing is like Blades of Glory and Balls of Fury. Even the names sound the same. They're too forgotten oh, yeah. of those like sports comedies, right? Everyone does dodgeball. Uh, which would be a good one too. We could do dodgeball with basketball. I don't know. So many ideas out there. Yeah. That's the era we're starting to get into though. Those kind of comedy classics. And in addition, like we said, with the other higher tier prestige, I guess I would say, uh, sports flicks. 
Yeah, the other one I just wanted to do again. I actually wanted to do is Rudy. Oh yeah, kind of got to do Rudy. Got to. <laughs> All right. Anyways, it's been a blast. Thanks for listening and keep on a lookout. We're going to be doing some some fun ones in the near future, some classics. So uh, take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.